When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. Good morning, everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, thank you for tuning in. I'm Frank Morano. There are some days when you wake up, and I think those of you that are awake right now listening to me live, and uh, no disrespect to those of you that are listening on the podcast, but those of us that are up live right now, we're something like a fraternity. Maybe we're up because we can't sleep. Maybe we're up because we're working. Maybe we're up because we're driving home from somewhere. Maybe we're up because we're driving to work. But for we're up right now, and that means probably we have an odd sleeping schedule, probably both at night and during the day. So I sleep, for the most part, during the day. And so there are days when I wake up and I feel like Rip Van Winkle. I feel like the whole world has passed me by. I'll, I mean, this happens often. I'll, I'll remember when I went to sleep on January 6th and they had the riot at the Capitol. I woke up and it's all everybody was talking about. I, I, and it took me a while to get acclimated to what even happened. Then uh, I remember election night. I went to bed on election morning at 6 a.m. thinking uh, pretty confident that Donald Trump had won. Woke up around 9.30 a.m. to do the 10 a.m. show, which I was doing at the time. And then it was looking increasingly less likely that Donald Trump had won. And this has happened a lot of other times. But I will tell you, when I woke up yesterday afternoon, I woke up and uh, my wife was over. uh, My friend's daughter, Lena, was over helping with the baby. And they had the television on which they rarely have on during the day. Television's rarely on in our house during the day. We're a radio household. And I turn to the television and I say, uh, I said, oh my goodness. And I just see at that time it said mass shooting on the subway. Uh, At the time, I think it said 17 people injured. That number went up throughout the day. I said, oh my goodness, what happened? I had missed all of this, missed it all. And this was all the world was talking about for hours. And then um, my wife says, and by the way, Brian Benjamin was arrested, the lieutenant governor. I said, what? And then almost for dramatic effect, she says, and Gilbert Gottfried died. And I couldn't believe I felt like literally the whole world had changed within the five or six hours that I was asleep. So it's just a weird feeling to wake up and everything is is different you ever see that i think it's a zombie movie uh 28 days 28 days later right i don't want to i don't want to give um i don't want to give much away but um it's good it's a good film and basically a guy is in a, a mild coma or something he's asleep 
for I don't know how long. How long? It might have been twenty eight days. Maybe that's where the title comes from. This is the beginning of the movie, so there are no spoilers. And he wakes up, and everything is different. Essentially, the whole world is run by zombies in the time that he was asleep. That's the way I felt when I woke up yesterday. I'm curious if you've ever experienced that, where you go to bed and everything's fine, or at least everything's normal, and then you wake up, and it seems like the world has gone crazy. That was my experience yesterday. It was very surreal. And I think only those of us that are awake at this time can understand it. Now, we are now normally, you know, if you listen to this show, I like to do the opposite of whatever everybody else is doing. But uh, there are just too many angles to this story regarding the uh, mass shooting on the subway. And I think uh, it requires some exploration and exposition. If you want to weigh in on this, 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. So we are going to break it down. I'm going to do the opposite of what I normally do. See, that's what's so great about this shit. One day we're a conventional radio show, and the other day we're talking about uh, what tastes better, boiled tea or microwave tea, while the rest of the world is talking about the last day before an election. You just never know what to expect. We're talking about aliens while the rest of the world's talking about inflation. But every once in a while we have to surprise ourselves by covering the news that people are talking about. So we're going to break down this subway shooting and exactly what happened. We'll invite your calls on it at 800-848-9222. And uh, we are going to break down this situation involving the lieutenant governor, uh, uh, Brian Benjamin, resigning. Uh, Boy, who could have seen this coming? Everybody! If you go back... And listen to the podcast of this show the day that uh, Brian Benjamin was appointed as lieutenant governor. You will go back and see that um, I said from the get-go, you know, I find these campaign finance allegations very troubling. Now, I didn't have any inside information. I didn't have anybody uh, tell in Albany saying, Psst, you know, watch this Brian Benjamin guy. He's troubled. No, nothing like that. You know what I did for my source of troubling information about Brian Benjamin's campaign finance irregularities? I read the paper, read the Daily News. I read The City, which is a great uh, uh, publication. And it was um, pretty obvious. I don't know what's going on with Governor Kathy Hochul that she didn't at least give the guy a Google search before appointing him. You know, I hate to say this. But it looks to me like the only reason Benjamin was selected was because he was black and because she wanted to appeal to black voters in New York City. Where was the vetting process? How about one tough interview? You know, I've been in the leadership of three different political parties. And each time we would endorse candidates, we would interview them. This guy, Brian Benjamin, would would never have made it past one of my candidate interviews, let alone to be appointed lieutenant governor. Sheesh. So I think uh, this makes Kathy Hochul just look awful. So we're going to get into that. And you know what I found interesting? And we're going to. So let me tell you what's coming up. 
Commissioner Bernard Carrick is going to be here in about 10 minutes. He was the commissioner of the NYPD. He was the commissioner of the Department of Corrections. He happened to be the commissioner of the NYPD on September 11th. So he knows a thing or two about dealing with crises. So we're going to get into how the police department is handling this, how a manhunt goes from here and how they find this guy and what he thinks the possible motivation is. Uh, As far as the situation involving Brian Benjamin goes in the two o'clock hour, I'm going to be joined. He was already scheduled to be on the show, interestingly enough, but it's just it's fortuitous that this happened. I'm going to be joined by a man who knows more about Albany and state politics than anyone in America, Fred, including me. Fred Dicker, longtime state editor of the New York Post, uh, the veteran journalist, the former dean of the Albany Press Corps. He's going to join us now. And I'd also love to hear if you have any interesting theories about what happened here. A few people told me they saw the Cuomo's fingerprints on this Brian Benjamin situation. And I'm going to get into this more in the two o'clock hour. I don't know about that. However, um, a friend of mine did show me a rather interesting tweet that Chris Cuomo put out on Monday. Now, what was Monday? What was Monday, Matt Blaze? The day after Sunday? That's right. The day after Sunday. It wasn't a holiday. Monday was just an ordinary Monday. I mean, it's a Monday in Holy Week, but it's the day after Palm Sunday. So Chris Cuomo tweeted a photo. And I'm going to retweet it. And you can tell me what you think of this. You can see it on my Twitter at Frank Morano, so you don't have to follow Chris Cuomo on Twitter. It's a photo of a cross made of palm. Now, it's the kind of thing that you would post maybe on Palm Sunday, but you wouldn't post the day after Palm Sunday. The the cross, the palm cross, is on a menu. And it looks like a nice restaurant. I don't know what restaurant it was, but they got uh, fondue for one. They got escargot, pan-seared foie gras. You know, it looks like an expensive restaurant. Wild Spanish octopus for $32. Sheesh. He looks like Chris Cuomo's still doing all right. All right. So he tweets this photo of this palm cross over a menu. And you can see it on my Twitter, at Frank Morano. And this is what Chris Cuomo tweets the day before Benjamin goes down. And so, dot, 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 we begin again. Hashtag rebirth and renewal. Now, isn't that a little ominous? Uh, It's oddly cryptic. The menu under it, the day before Brian Benjamin goes down. I mean, it's almost like something out of a gangster picture. So I do wonder... If the Cuomo's do have something to do with this, look, they can't force Brian Benjamin to break the law. And we're going to get into exactly what he's accused of a little bit later. I'm going to take your calls. We have uh, five open lines if you want to jump on board. 800-848-WABC. I want to thank one of our great listeners, Jeff Filling. uh, Excuse me, Jeff Schilling. Jeff Schilling went to a uh, book signing that Uncle Floyd had over in Totowa. 
And I didn't even know Uncle Floyd had, was, had a book out. Otherwise, I would have promoted it with him the last time that he was on the show. And he went to the book signing, and he got Uncle Floyd to sign a book for me. And he sent it to me, and uh, I got the nicest note in the world from Jeff Schilling, and I got a the nicest inscription possible from Uncle Floyd. Very kind to, uh, re- very kind of both of them, quite frankly. And then lastly, I heard Steve from Manhattan, who's still just giddy. He's still high over the fact that we had Pat Buchanan on Monday. So I heard him um, on with Dominic Carter uh, last hour. And he had a very creative interpretation of the Colin Ferguson Long Island Railroad shooting. He said that the reason they did it on the Long Island Railroad instead of the subway is because Colin Ferguson didn't want to embarrass David Dinkins. Now, I don't think that's true because that was after David Dinkins had already lost the mayoral election. And I've never heard that alleged by anybody, including Colin Ferguson's, for, Colin Ferguson's former attorney, Ron Kuby, who is a friend of mine and who was all set to come on this show before uh, Chris from the Catskills and the parade of Chris from the Catskills wannabes bashed him on the Curtis show. But um, it reminded me of a story, and maybe I shouldn't tell this story, but I, I find the story just so funny. And it was the day after. Now, keep in mind what life was like in 1993. We didn't live in a world of instant communication where you immediately got uh, news alerts on your phone and on your computer. And there was 24 hour cable news. You really learned the news either on the evening news or the next day when you read the paper. Now, back then, 30 years ago. Both Bob Grant and Rush Limbaugh worked here. And look, Rush had a lot of reverence for Bob. But Bob was always, he liked Rush. He did. And he appreciated that Rush was always so generous and kind with him and always gave him credit. But there was a part of Bob, not just with respect to this, but with respect to many things, that could be very petty. And there was a part of Bob that was a little, I don't want to say jealous because he wasn't jealous. He was annoyed that Rush achieved a level of superstardom, fame, and and wealth, quite frankly, that Bob never achieved nationally. And Bob believed he should have. And, you know, Bob was the greatest. He should have. (laughs) Now, it happened during Rush Hour, the Colin Ferguson shooting. So the next morning, one of the tabloids, either the New York Post or the Daily News, sees the, 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 as the front page of their, their tabloid that day, they put on the front page, Rush Hour Massacre. And so Mike Thompson, who in those days was, I think, producing the Curtis and Lisa Sliwa show, and then he went on to become the program director at uh, ESPN Radio. He's done a lot of other things. Great radio professional. And... He's got that newspaper on his desk. And Bob comes into Mike Thompson's office just to chat. And he sees, he looks down at the post and sees Rush Hour Massacre. And he assumes it's an article about Rush Limbaugh. And he just says to Mike, you're, you're kidding me, that fat is in the paper again. 
And he walked out of Mike Thompson's office thinking that it was an article about Rush Limbaugh. Uh, obviously, a little bit later on, he learned the truth. All right, 800-848-9222. Andrew is in Brooklyn. Andrew, uh, where where are you? Where were you in relation to the shooting that took place in Sunset Park? Frank, good evening. Uh, I am a train operator. I literally just got off work. Uh, well, so tell me what happened. Tell me what your perspective was during this whole thing. Okay, so uh, I was at that location last night at midnight. Obviously, I was home by 1 in the morning, so I didn't see what, what transpired until about uh, 9.30 this morning. And look, I, you know, I was shocked and appalled and disgusted like everybody else. But, you know, in a, in a, in a convoluted way, it doesn't surprise me. I mean, the fact now that we're learning this guy's an out-of-towner, you know, Philly or wherever, uh, Philadelphia, I believe. Uh, you know, look, I'm going to keep this very simple, Frank. My last trip tonight was canceled because uh, of, of what transpired today. So I actually got to ride home as a passenger from Astoria back to Coney Island. And I'm just observing, you know, I'm looking at the people, everybody's kind of minding their own business. But I got to tell you, Frank, because we're local the entire way, the amount of homeless wandering around, uh, you know, we're talking about, you know, guys who are barefoot. I mean, just the most despicable looking, grimy, what we call EDPs, emotionally disturbed mm-hmm. people. Mm-hmm. Uh, Frank, they're, they're, they're a menace. And, you know, I'm no kid. I'm, I'm 57. I remember the trains back in the 70s and 80s. And believe me, it was no picnic back then, uh, you know, between the muggies and the purse snatches. And, the, you know, you don't really have that today. Everybody talks about the, the crime was way worse in the 70s and 80s. But the bums back then, I'm making a joke in, in, in a crazy way, the, pum, the bums back then had more class. <laughs> you know, they they had sports jackets. They would be they'd have their bottle of liquor in, in a brown bag. And I, I'm 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 being truthful. And they were respectful. These people that are wandering around today are 50 times worse than what they were uh, 30, 40 years ago. Well, look, that's been my experience as well, Andrew. Thanks for sharing that perspective. I'm glad I'm glad you're safe. Um, but um, and that's why I really give credit to Mayor Adams for trying to undo, get get rid of these homeless encampments and for trying to restore, renew, and use Kendra's law because, unfortunately, allowing these people to stay on the streets, and I don't think that's in any way tied to what happened with this subway shooting. I, I don't think this was an emotionally disturbed person, as you heard Andrew mention. This is someone that came here to New York to commit this crime. So uh, I think that... That's a separate issue, but still a big problem. But I think, uh, you know, Adams at least is a has an understanding of the problem. Whether or not he's doing the right thing, we can debate. But uh, I think he at least understands what some of the problem is. John is in Garden City. Hello, John. Hey, Frank. Um, I'm going to get my speakerphone up here. Yeah. Quick thing. You know, uh, there's a little uh, uh, Star Trek and the whole thing with the city. Uh, I was a kid watching the Batman series and the movies in the movies of Batman. I always wonder, how can a city be so destructive like, you know, Gotham City? How does that happen? It's happening. This is Gotham City. You know, all these vagrants and, and, you know, ill reputes and big government running. This is exactly what's happening. Just like like Gotham City. It answered my question all these years. How does that happen? This is a perfect example of it. Cities falling apart and all this destruction, poor management and so forth. That's my two cents. Well, thank you, John. Look, uh, how do you turn it around? Well, 
it was turned around 30 years ago. We're going to get into it with uh, Bernard Carrick, who in the late 90s, early 2000s, was one of the people that helped turn the tide on this city. And uh, I'm looking forward to chatting with him about this and just crime in general in New York. Still to come, we have Fred Dicker on this uh, Brian Benjamin issue. I also want to talk to him about Andrew Cuomo's possible comeback. It looks like, uh, because Andrew Cuomo didn't file petitions last week, it looks like that Andrew Cuomo is not going to be running for governor, at least not as a Democrat. His only option now is to run third party. I think that's unlikely. I'll talk to Fred Dicker about it. And then we will... Uh, review the life and times of Gilbert Gottfried with Bruce Charrett when he joins me in the 3 o'clock hour. whole bunch of other stuff coming your way as well. Uh, New York City Police Commissioner Bernard, Bernard Carrick joins me straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. I'm Frank Morano. You're listening to The Other Side of Midnight on 77 WABC. Well, all of New York, I think actually all the country, maybe even beyond the borders of this country, is still reeling over this horrific mass shooting that takes place on a subway. You know, there's all sorts of things that we as New Yorkers that take the subway on a regular basis might expect. You might expect to see vomit on the subway. You might to see might expect to see someone drunk and passed out. You might expect to see uh, people coming in and begging you for money. You might expect to see dancers or singers or uh, homeless people, whatever the case may be. I think very few of us expect that when we step onto a train, in Brooklyn that there's any possibility of a mass shooting. As it stands now, the person that's been identified as a person of interest here, Frank James, is still at large and uh, they're trying to, authorities are trying to track him down. Uh, Joining me to help break this down and uh, add his own insight into this situation is a gentleman that knows a thing or two about uh, leading law enforcement agencies during a time of crisis. Very, very pleased to welcome former New York City uh, police commissioner, former New York City Department of Corrections. His resume is about uh, 20 other pages long with all the things that he's done in public life and private life. Commissioner Bernard Carrick. Commissioner, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Thanks, Frank. So uh, why are they calling this fella, Frank James, a person of interest right now instead of a suspect? Well, I I don't know. Uh, You know, it really depends on uh, the overall evidence they have. Um, Usually that's the beginning signs that, um, you know, he's the guy they're looking for. I think there may be some some points they want to sew up and uh, and conclude um, but by the looks of things, by the sounds of what I'm hearing at headquarters and, uh, and from people downtown, I think this is their guy. Uh, I think it's somebody that, um, you know, is going to wind up being charged with these crimes, uh, the shooting itself and, and possibly other crimes. Um, you know, only time will tell. I think it's, uh, it's a little premature to, uh, to classify this, um, you know, well, I want to take a step back for a second, Frank. I want to make this clear. I've heard that um, the police commissioner said uh, they didn't want to 
classified this as an act of terrorism. Uh, The mayor said it was premature to say. Here's what I would say uh, to both of them and to the general public. Go on the FBI website. Look up the definition for domestic terrorism. Violent criminal acts committed by individuals and or groups to further ideological goals stemming from domestic influences such as those of a political, religious, social, racial, or environmental nature. Now, anybody that looks at this guy's social media campaigns, um, his social media platform, this guy is a black radical, uh, believes in black nationalism. He's no different than those that were uh, battling the U.S. uh, back in the 70s, 80s, like the Black Liberation Army, Black Panther Party. Um, He's an extreme racist. Uh, This is a guy that was outraged because the new Supreme Court, Justice Jackson, is married to a white man. Um, This guy is what I would consider a domestic terrorist. He got on that train, um, you know, pre-planned an attack, used the smoke um, grenade, uh, detonated that to create chaos, opened fire, shot 10 people, uh, injured 29 in total. Um, because he basically is an extreme racist. Um, I don't know, by the FBI's classification, he's a domestic terrorist. And I, and I think we live in a, in a society today where everybody is afraid to call it what it is. That's pretty much what I see. And unless somebody has something that changes my mind, uh, that's what I would name it, call it. And it's important to know that uh, you can be a terrorist even if you're not an Islamic fundamentalist. You can be a a white nationalist terrorist. You could be a a black radical terrorist. So your read of his social media postings is that he falls into that latter category, that he's just so uh, up in arms about uh, about a race war or something that he's so he's driven to violence because of it. Yeah, this stuff is all over his uh, social media posts from what I've seen. And what people are reporting, some of the stuff I haven't seen, but I did see him personally um, making comments in videos. Um, some of this stuff is outrageous. Uh, and I don't know what the FBI was looking at him for in 2019, but he was on their radar. Um, so that'll be a, a point of interest later on down the line as well, I would imagine. It does seem that with a lot of these bombers or, or a lot of these terrorists, whether it was the Orlando nightclub uh, shooter, whether it's the uh, Times Square bomber, that the FBI knows who these guys are in advance. I mean, even the Sarnayev brothers, who was uh, you know were responsible for the Boston Marathon bombing, Russia had given U.S. authorities a heads up that hey, these guys might be trouble. Uh, why is it that so often the FBI? seems that they uh, they know who these folks are and yet these folks are then still in a position to acquire uh, heavy duty weapons well you know what frank uh, i think some of that comes out of this fear today for law enforcement to do their job because they're afraid of backlash um, the bottom line is uh, in many of these categories many of these circumstances the FBI or local law enforcement is notified um, for one reason or another that these people, um, you know, are suspect of something. Um, they're looked at. Um, there's a background done. 
Um, they may, may even be interviewed, um, depending on what the scenario is. And then the authorities take a step back and they sort of leave them alone. Um, there has to be a flagging mechanism. When you have somebody like this, they start acquiring weapons or they start posting things on their social media. Um, you know, if these are people that were flagged for one thing or another and this other stuff starts to creep up, there must be or should be a way to monitor it. And when it gets, you know, when it when it sort of, you know, uh, goes public and, and uh, you see the ugly side of the guy, then you may want to take action and you may want to take another look at him. That doesn't seem to happen for some reason. And I think they slip through the cracks and, uh, and then you have something like this. Uh, now, there was a report, um, I think it's confirmed by the uh, MTA and by the police, that the subway cameras might have been malfunctioning. Do we know that, that it was indeed the case? And uh, were you, are you, is that a pretty big fail on the part of the, on the, part of the MTA? Uh, would we know a lot more and be further along in this process if those subway cameras were functioning? Uh, you know what, Frank, I, I hate the Monday morning quarterback stuff like that, and I don't know if the reports are accurate, whether they failed or not. Um, look, uh, the New York City mass transit system is an enormous, enormous system um, with thousands upon thousands of cameras. Um, were these cameras down at the time? I don't know. Um, I think somebody will have to look and see, one, if they were, two, how long they were down. You know, if they went down yesterday or within the last 36 hours and uh, and they weren't brought, brought back up to service, you know, is, is that, uh, you know, a, a major failure on, on, part of, on the part of the city? You know, some of this stuff takes time to get them back up and running, to have inspectors go out and look at sure. them to see what the problems are. So I, I don't want to criticize anybody there unless we know, you know, if they were down for six months, three months, okay, well, that's a problem. But um, I, I don't want to. I don't want to crucify the city and sure. say, "Yeah, this is a big issue." Um, when it may not have been understood. Understood. Now, um, how does a manhunt like this work? By the way, if there are any updates, any briefings from the police commissioner, or the mayor, or anybody else, we'll bring it to you live. But if you were the commissioner today, how do you go about searching for someone like this who seems to have traveled to New York for the express purpose of committing this savage crime? Who doesn't live here? Where do you go? Well, listen, you know, when I was uh, I, I did a number of interviews this morning and I predicted um, that they would have him identified within hours. And they did. Um, how do they do that? Uh, primarily through data collection, uh, you know, the cameras, the phones, uh, fingerprints, things of that nature. Um, you know, these are things that no, nobody does this stuff better than the NYPD. Number one. Number two. They're working in conjunction with the terrorist task force, which is, you know, a multitude of agencies, including the FBI, the ATF, the New York State Police. So they have the best of the best uh, when it comes to enforcement. They have numbers like nobody else has in the country uh, in resources. Um, so they got him identified. And now as far as finding him, um I, I don't want to get into specifics mm -hmm. uh, at this point because he's not in custody. 
Um, and you don't know what the hell he's listening to. He may be listening to your show. So uh, <laughs> bottom line is um, there's a number of things they can do uh, to identify and, and locate uh, places uh, that he's been in the past, people he knows, friends, family, uh, things like that. You know, it's like when somebody gets off Rikers Island, right? Somebody somebody escapes from a jail, any jail, any prison. You know, people say, oh, it's a needle in a haystack. You're never going to find them. We usually find them within 36 hours. There are certain things people do um, after they escape, and we know what they are, and we know where to go look for them. This is the same type of thing. So uh, I, I'm confident um, they will have him in custody in short order. may take a day or two, but um, they'll, they'll get him. I appreciate the fact that you don't want a Monday morning quarterback here uh, because there are a lot of other folks that are. And it's brought to, brought to mind, brought to the forefront, a lot of concerns about safety and security in the subway. Now, if someone wants to do something like this, if someone wants to uh, shoot a bunch of people on the subway and uh, they're determined to commit an act of terrorism like this, is there really anything that can be done to stop them on a subway system as vast as New York? Or are these the kind of soft targets that you've been warning about for 21 years? They, they, this, is the pri- this is a primary soft target. How many times, Frank, have we talked about New York City being a target-rich environment for people like this? It just is because the magnitude of the people, the movement, the mass transit system, the the uh, the bus system, the the uh, you know Grand Central Station at five o'clock in the afternoon, in just the middle of Grand Central Station, something like that. Look, um, we're always going to be a target-rich environment based on the numbers. Um, and and I got to be honest, you could have a cop in each one of those cars on the train. And you could still get a guy if he wanted, if he was, you know, laser focused, he could, you know, take out five, 10, 15 people Mm -hmm. before the cops took him out. Um, You know, it really depends. The only way you can get these guys and stop them and prevent them from doing something like this is if you get them in advance, if you, um, you know, if you have intelligence and you take them out before they do what they're going to do. And, and that's one of the reasons I've always said uh, since the aftermath of the 9-11, there's nothing more, there's nothing more important to us than our intelligence capabilities. Mm. No, you, you've been very consistent with that. If people are just tuning in, we're talking with former New York City Police Commissioner Bernard Carrick. In your view, though, uh, a lot of people are going to be going to work in a few hours. Uh, some people may be uh, going out if they're out. Uh, if they're off on Friday, they may be going out tomorrow night. And we're planning on taking the subways. Do you think the subways are safe for New Yorkers? Would you have any reluctance about allowing your own children to take the subways? No, what I just, uh, what I would say is, you know, pay attention to who's around you. If you see anything suspicious, let somebody know. Call 911. Um, you know, and uh, I'm sure, uh, especially now and until they have this guy in custody, there'll be added coverage, substantially added coverage, um, to ensure that New Yorkers are safe and secure. 
Uh, and as far as a prediction on apprehension goes, do you think we're looking at 24 hours, a week, more, less? What do you think? No, I'd say it's sooner than later. Really? Okay. Yeah, I'd say it's sooner than later. W- what did you make of the mayor's comments? And uh, I, I'm sure the mayor was frustrated being stuck under quarantine with this uh, with COVID, and he wasn't able to be at the scene there. But he did uh, address uh, reporters and the public via video. He seemed to be placing a great deal of emphasis on on guns, which he's emphasized before when it comes to previous crimes. Do you think that's a misplaced emphasis? It always is. It always is. Uh, You know, listen, when something like this happens, look at the lunatics that committed the act of violence. You know what? Uh, Let's find out if it was a a legal gun or not. Let's find out if this guy had a criminal record and he shouldn't have had a gun at all. You know, 98% of the time, um, you know, you have these politicians get up start talking all this garbage about how we need stricter gun laws. You cannot physically have any stricter gun laws in New York City than you have today. It's impossible. You can't. So don't tell me stricter gun laws is the answer. It's not the answer. The answer is lock up the bad guys when you find them and stop them from doing what they're doing. Make sure they go to jail and they stay there. Get a prosecutor in place that's going to prosecute and enforce the law. Get a governor in place that won't add these bail reform laws to the laws and and, and let people out of jail and don't let them get locked up. And when it comes to crime in general, not necessarily this specific incident, but when it comes to every crime category with the exception of maybe murder and rape, Crime was already up last year over the year before that. Crime was up the year before that over the year before that. And crime within the first four months of the Adams administration is already up uh, pretty significantly. And it doesn't seem like it's due to a lack of emphasis on crime fighting under Mayor Adams. Uh, How do you think Mayor Adams is doing addressing the crime issue in general? I think he has to be more aggressive. Stop being, you know, I when I listen to him and I hear him speak like I heard him today, it's annoying. Eric Adams knows exactly what has to be done to reduce crime in this city. He was a lieutenant under my command when I was police commissioner. I am 1,000% confident he knows what has to be done. Stop cowering to the left. Do your job. Do what's right. Forget, forget all the woke garbage. Do what's right. And then go to the governor and tell the governor that you've got to get rid of this prosecutor and prosecutors like him. Uh, on the crime issue, you know, I heard Eric Adams on the Bernie and Sid show last week. And uh, to his credit, he came on, even though it's a right leaning show and most of his constituency is left leaning. And it was very interesting, the words that he used. Uh, Bernie McGurk asked him about the um, about bringing back the anti-crime unit and about an emphasis on broken windows policing, which worked very well when you were police commissioner and under your two predecessors. He was very careful. He said, no, we're not bringing back an anti-crime unit. We're bringing back we're bringing about an anti-gun unit. And then he also said we are not going back to broken windows. I'm not returning to broken windows. A second, I don't have an anti-crime unit. I have an anti-gun unit. 
Why do you think he was so eager to run away from those two terms, anti-crime unit and broken windows, when if you look at the descriptions of those two things, it looks pretty similar to what Mayor Adams is doing? It's 100 percent the same thing. It's stupidity. And here's exactly what he did. He cowered to the left. He didn't want to say the words that they don't like him to say. That's why he said it. Anti-crime units, plainclothes units in the NYPD, they're a primary focus on the job. And I was there. I was an anti-crime cop. I know. In Midtown South, in Times Square. Our sole function in life was to take guns off the streets. That's your job. So you can call it an anti-gun unit. You can call it an anti-crime unit. You can call it Martian unit. You can call it whatever you want. Bottom line is, that's the thing you're doing. You're taking guns off the streets. It's not about the name. It's about the function. Uh, lastly, sir, on the on the gun uh, question, yesterday the president, even before this, President Biden uh, sought to make a, an issue of these ghost guns, and he wants greater regulation of these ghost guns, including um, a very high-profile crime in New York that involved these ghost guns recently, basically these make with these make-your-own-gun kits. Uh, keeping in mind what you said, that you always think that there's this uh, this tendency among politicians, particularly Democratic politicians, to demagogue the gun issue. Do you think greater regulation of ghost guns, things like background checks and so forth, do you think that's wise? <laughs> Frank, I haven't seen one violent felon um, submit an application for a background check. Not one. Right. Not one ever. Right. Violent felons, people that go out to rob with firearms, guns, they're not doing it with legal guns. They're doing it with illegal guns. They're doing it with guns they stole, guns that somebody got for them. That's what they're doing it with. You don't see NRA members running into a store, robbing the store and shooting up trains. You don't see that. This whole issue is stupidity. You know what? We had the same issues under Giuliani that they have today, but it was a little different. You know how it was different? It was five times worse when Giuliani took office than it is today. Mm -hmm. Five times worse. And yet we dropped the violent crime by 65%. We dropped the murder rate by 70 And in the black community, we dropped the murder rate by almost 80%. So don't tell me it can't be done. Don't tell me it doesn't work. Don't tell me broken windows doesn't work. Don't tell me it has to be a, a, a an anti whatever he said anti gun unit versus anti crime unit. It's that's it's all nonsense. The bottom line is the NYPD knows their job. Back them up, indemnify them, give them the resources and the training to do their job, and let them go do the damn job. And you would reduce crime in the city of New York. On that note, Commissioner Carrick, it is always a treat to talk with you. I'm sorry that so often it's under tragic circumstances. Uh, I'll look forward to getting together with you in person sometime soon. And I'll always look forward to our chats on the radio. Thanks, Frank. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call, 1-800-848-WABC. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Straight ahead. 
We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. New York City. That's me, born and raised, very proudly. Um, my thanks to Commissioner Carrick for uh, joining me on the radio. If you want to comment, jump on board at uh, 800-848-9222. Uh, we are going to be back tomorrow. We're going to be here for Holy Thursday, but I am going to be off on Good Friday for the Easter slash Good Friday holiday. I'm going to be uh, spending some time with some family uh, where my wife and I are going down to uh, Pennsylvania, and uh, we'll do some Easter egg coloring, and I'm looking forward to drinking alcohol again. I know there's always a little bit of a, a dispute about whether when Lent actually ends, when the Lenten fast ends. The What I've seen, it, if, especially if you don't indulge on Sundays, which I didn't, if you don't indulge on Sundays, then I think you're able to break your Lenten fast in the evening of Holy Holy Thursday. So that's what I'm planning on do, is doing, especially since I'm uh, going to be off on Friday. I am going to be uh, breaking, uh, trying alcohol again on uh, Thursday evening. Now, I a lot of people, actually a surprising amount of people, have been asking me, well, that means no show Friday. You got Curtis filling in. And by the way, I'm warning you now, I'm sure Curtis will concoct some bizarre explanation of why I'm not here on Friday. I don't know what he's going to say, but none of it is true. It is a planned vacation day, been planned for weeks, and it's something I do every year. I'm almost always off on Good Friday. Now, in terms of um, of what we normally do on Fridays, we are going to do denunciations, but a couple of people have asked me, are you going to do Ask Frank Anything? And I've been trying to fit it because of all the breaking news today. We had to sort of rejigger some things for today and move some folks that were scheduled for today to tomorrow. We have the AC report on Thursday. We are going to do denunciations on Thursday instead of Friday, because if we wait a whole week, then the denunciations will no longer be timely. We are not going to do uh, ask Frank anything on Thursday. Here's what we are going to do. And I know I'm blown away by the number of people that messaged me about this, that emailed me. And you can email me as well, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. So here's what we're going to do. The following Friday, which would be April 22nd, the following Friday, we will do two hours of Ask Frank Anything to make up for us not doing an hour. And... In addition to that, I will be doing a video, Ask Frank Anything, on Friday morning as 
as I drive out to Pennsylvania with my wife. So you can follow that on Facebook and submit your questions either via email or you can do it live as this Facebook video happens. It'll probably be around 11 o'clock. So if you want to watch the video, I will be doing a live video at Facebook.com slash MoranoFan. If you're not already following the page, follow the page, and I will do it live Friday morning on Facebook. And then the following Friday, you're going to still get two hours of Ask Frank Anything, which is something we rarely do. All right, 800-848-9222 if you want to comment, 1-800-848-WABC. Al is in New York City. Hello. Good morning, Mr. Morano. Uh Excellent guest there, and uh, uh, thinking out of the box. Absolutely. You know, many, many, years, many, many years ago, they had the deuce. You know the deuces, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Back, back, back in the 70s. Yeah, well, back, back in the bad old days, they would have stores like sporting goods stores, and in front, next to the fake IDs, they would have holsters. Well, guess what? There was an detective there. You know what he would do? He'd tell the guy behind the counter, anybody buys a holster, you put it in one of these bags. It was a red bag, right? This guy's catching him left and right. You know what? He thought out of the box. You know who that was? That was Bernie Carrick. Really? All right. Interesting. That's correct. And he uh, transformed the island. What he's saying now is 100% right. But what's happening is, uh, ever since the George Floyd, right, you have cameras in your face. The officer has to carry a camera, right? You second guess. You could be a chief of department in full uniform, and you're being assaulted on the Brooklyn Bridge. You see what I'm saying? And this generation is not like other generations where you have a little bit of respect. So cops don't want to do one thing that's going to jeopardize their job or their career. You know, they're hand-tied, you know? Now, you're exactly right, Al. It is unfortunate. And hopefully, hopefully things uh, turn around. Thank you very much. Uh, you know, by the way, I've told you about my obsession with television infomercials. I am watching one of these TVs now. And they have an infomercial on right now for this Emerald Lagasse French door. And I'm watching. They're making egg sandwiches in this thing. They're making a rotisserie chicken in this thing. They're making salmon. They're making everything in this thing. Onion rings. It has an air fryer function. It's called the Emerald French door. I don't want to give them a commercial because they're not buying um, ads on this. But, again, I don't even cook. But I, I feel almost compelled to buy not only this Emerald French door, but the cookbook that comes with it. Just so I can hold, walk around the house with the cookbook and say, it's a cookbook! It's a cookbook! So, um, I don't know. These infomercial producers are the best in the world. If I ever run for office or anything, I'm going to hire whoever does these infomercials to produce my campaign ads as if it's an infomercial. I might even do that. I might even do radio commercials, commercials for this radio show, as if it's an infomercial. Because I, I love these infomercials. Great. 800-848-9222. Six open lines if you want to jump on board. Leo is in Manhattan Island. Hello, Leo. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Frank, I have a couple points, past ones, and then on the end, this question for you. Sure. I have in front of me from Polly's website, a variety of general description information about suspect or at large by, by importance. Number one is sex. Number two is race or national origin. Third is age, height, followed by weight and build up. From start with Biden over or governor over our mayor over Rita Cosby who mentioned 15 times his, uh, his weight and height and never mentioned his race over Dominic Carter who mentioned it twice in one hour show. 
Although you you started your show too without mentioning, if, if your guest, of course, was talking about it. My question is: Do you think that's part of why everybody is tiptoeing around that? Is because of the beginning of like this year was all the the crimes black on black, and now in this case there is a lot of other nationalities involved. That's why everybody because this person is at large. And this should be describing him. I'm, I'm on the I'm on the subway station corner, and he can run out of the subway. I don't know if he is Asian, black, or white. Nobody's saying it. Well, again, I think um, you know I didn't describe the suspect earlier, but I certainly am not reluctant to say that he's black. I mean, if you look at his picture, he certain he certainly is. And uh, I didn't get the sense that the police commissioner was was either. So uh, I I don't know that I share your. Um, I, I don't know that I I don't think most of my colleagues are reluctant to say that he's that he's black. Rita was like 15 times mentioning his stucky. How old is he? How, uh, yeah, I, you how know, you, I guess he'd have to call call Rita. I, I don't know, and, but uh, I couldn't New, tell you. Your folks have uh, like 500 uh, lines uh, online. I just read it on my phone. There's a once after like 300 lines mentioning just. Uh, some witness saw a black person leaving van. That's the only place. When they was describing him, they don't mention it. Well, when I saw the press briefing by the police commissioner and the police chief describing what was happening, that was one of the first things they said. They gave his height, and they said they and you know they also, if you subscribe to Notify NYC, they send out these alerts. And it says right in the the alert, it says that he is um, a black and male. So I, I don't know. I mean, look, it's certainly possible. There is a great sensitivity to discussing race. Uh, I don't know. But if you look, look, this is what the description from Notify NYC says. It says gray hair and brown eyes. He uh, was seen last seen wearing glasses, a black down jacket, blue pajama pants and Skechers shoes. The first sentence, though, says a missing vulnerable. Uh, well, now here, wait a minute. Oh no, this is the wrong guy. Uh, now, now I'm looking at the wrong guy. All right, this is the person of interest, Frank James. NYPD is searching for the following person of interest in connection with the Brooklyn subway shooting. Frank James, black male, five five, with a heavy build. He was last seen wearing a gray hoodie and a green green construction vest. Anyone with information about his whereabouts is asked to call NYPD's Crime Stoppers at 800-577-TIPS. Now, that's from the city itself. They send that to folks with the expectation that that's what's going to be disseminated to the public. Frank, I'm just trying to make a point. I'm driving, working in Manhattan in a car. All I hear is radio last three or four hours. And I heard mentioning it maybe three times in four hours, but it's the whole time talking about it. That's my point. All right. Fair enough. Fair enough, uh, Leo. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Jeff is in Suffolk County. Hello, Jeff. Hi, Frank. You started off the show with a sinism. Uh, what, was, what was today? Yes, that's right. You that's right. Opposite, it was right? opposite. Do, do the opposite? That's right. Well, you know what else? The guy, uh, Mallorca, spoke the other day about domestic terrorism. And he said white supremacist. And that seems like it's the opposite, eh? I mean, based on what Bernie Carrick said, certainly seems possible, doesn't it? And the FBI dropped the ball again. huh? He was on the radar. Yeah, I I, I always hear that. They're on the radar, but they dropped the ball. Well, That's why I brought that up with um, with Bernie Carrick, because 
How often does this need to to happen where the FBI is alerted to somebody that's an extremist or a terrorist or something? And then and then and then they're still in a position to commit the crime. I mentioned the Orlando nightclub shooter. Uh, the uh, and th- in that case, it was the guy's father that went to the FBI and said, Psst, "I think my son's a terrorist," and they still put him in a position to get a semi-automatic weapon to kill all those people. Um, I mean, the guy was on the terror watch list, and he was still in a position to go buy a semi-automatic weapon. I don't understand it. I don't understand it. The Sarnia brothers, same thing. All right, next hour, uh, we're going to get into the resignation of Brian Benjamin. What do you think that means for Kathy Hochul? And um, what do you think it means for New York State? I'll take your calls on it at 800-848-9222. And do you see Cuomo's fingerprints on it? Also, um, I'll talk about it with Frederick U. Dicker. Nobody knows more about Albany than Fred Dicker does. Looking forward to that. Meantime, uh, you can help control the pet population by making sure you get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. You know, uh, I think I'm very clear about my interests on this show. And whenever there's a subject that I'm interested in, it's a very interesting thing that happens. I I get dozens, some days hundreds, of people that send me the story. Now, if it's in one of the major papers, the New York Post, the New York Times, the Daily News, you, you really don't need to send it to me because chances are I've I've read it already. But if it's from a more obscure publication that I don't habitually read, then by all means, please send it to me. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com. For instance, yesterday my wife uh, sent me this article from the San Jose Mercury News about uh, – I, I think it was from there – about a city out there. I think it was San Jose deciding not to use ranked choice voting. That is an issue I'm interested in, and that is an, inter- an issue that I would not have – That was uh, I wouldn't have seen that article but for her sending it to me. Yesterday, or maybe it was the day before, the day the the article that everybody sent me was a story about Oliva Dairy in Little Italy facing closure due to the pandemic. Now, this is if you've never been there, I've been there many times. They not only have a lot of great food products, but it's a great atmosphere. And I'm going to be in Little Italy. Tomorrow night, Thursday. Well, what's tomorrow? What's today? Wednesday? Yes. So tomorrow's Thursday. So yes, I'll be there tomorrow night. So I'm going to try and uh, pop in there. But this is a deli that is the oldest cheese store in the United States. Now, with something as the oldest cheese store in the United States, it should be celebrated. It should be preserved. It should be patronized. It should be considered a national treasure. Instead... It is now in danger of closing because of $509,000 worth of rent that it failed to pay during the pandemic. This is a cheese shop that was first established back in 1892. It's on Grand Street. 
It's been sued by its landlord for allegedly owing the back rent over the past few years. The monthly rent under the Little Italy Shops lease is $23,756. So they suffered from the closure of nearby restaurants, which regularly spent thousands of dollars monthly on its delicious Italian cheeses. They have mozzarella, provolone, rigat. And uh, I'm going to invite the owner of this show, uh, this store on the uh, on the show, because uh, this is a real shame. I hope they're able to survive, uh, because as far as I'm concerned, this is what makes New York a city worth living in. And it seems like every week we see a different story, a, a different store like this, a different business like this closing. And in my view, every time one of these stores closes, a piece of New York dies with it. Now, I guess maybe gentrification is inevitable, but it's just so sad to me. And it's why I usually oppose things like Walmart coming to the neighborhood or a big box store, because I like to preserve local businesses like this. Uh, It's just so sad to me that. These stores are closing, places like Forlini's and uh, Oliva, and, you know, the list goes on and on. And yet you see NYU, which is tax-exempt, just growing and growing and growing. It's like the blob. It just grows in every direction. They just get more and more land for dormitories and buildings and more and more. And other universities as well. Again, I'm not anti-NYU, but... All right, leave some city for the rest of us. And if it's not uh, NYU or Columbia, then the store closes and it becomes a um, a, a Chase Bank or a Subway sandwich shop or uh, a CVS. And I'm just sick of it. There's a great blog. Um, a lot of you may disagree with the politics of the blogger. He, I think, is pretty... Progressive. I've invited him on the show many times. Uh, His name's uh, Jeremiah, but um, he's got a blog called Vanishing New York, and he chronicles a piece of New York that dies all the time on his blog. It's a wonderful blog. I I really I really enjoy it. And I read his book on uh, on the subject as well. But um, I don't know what can be done about it in the long term. I was a big supporter of the Small Business Survival Act. That went nowhere because the very same people that benefit from small businesses closing and chain stores gobbling them up are the very same people that fund business as usual in Albany and in City Hall and elsewhere. Now, let's discuss what's happening in Albany and City Hall. I'm going to talk in a minute with Fred Dicker. Former state editor of the New York Post, uh, great radio talk show host covering Albany for many years. And the lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin, which I warned you all about that this was coming. Brian Benjamin has been arrested. He's been indicted. He's been charged with campaign finance irregularities. Now, what did he do? Matt Blaze, you familiar with the story? So people really need to look beyond the headline. To understand what happened here. Usually when we think of a corrupt politician, what do we think of? We think of a politician that takes a bribe, that's stealing from somebody, 
that does something to enrich himself, that uh, grabs some cash in a duffel bag, like uh, Abscam style, and puts it in his own pocket. And he gets wealthy off of the public dole. That is not what happened here. That is not at all what happened. Brian Benjamin, uh, at least so far in these charges, is not accused of putting $1 in his own pocket. Now, he's done other things that I think look a lot like self-enrichment. For instance, to me, it looks like he paid for his wedding with campaign funds. But let's put that aside. He's not charged with that. Let's put that aside. So what Brian Benjamin is alleged to have done, as I understand it, is he gave money to a wealthy developer. Uh, Because state senators, as part of the member items they get, they can fund certain projects, they can fund certain nonprofits, and he gave money to this developer, state money, taxpayer money. And in return, remember what was going on at the time. Brian Benjamin was running for controller at the time. He was here at WABC for the debate. He, He lost miserably. I think he finished fourth or fifth. But New York City has this horrible matching funds program, which started off bad and has only gotten worse. And the way it works, and I'll spare you the details, but the way it works is the city will match in taxpayer dollars eight to one your donation of up to, I think it's now $200. So that means if Matt Blaze, if I'm running for mayor or controller or public advocate or city council, and Matt Blaze is a New York City resident, he can give me $100. And that $100 contribution becomes $900, subsidized by whom? The taxpayer. The taxpayer. It's and, – and unfortunately – and look, I can – I'm a believer in public financing to some extent, but this – has is just an awful program. It does nothing to make elections more competitive. It does nothing to help underdog candidates. It does nothing. The only thing it does is enrich politicians. Um, and so what developer did was he used straw donors. He got a whole bunch of people that didn't make these donations to say they made the donations so that Brian Benjamin could get the match. Now, why am I mentioning all this? Because this very same – this system is an invitation to corruption – It's part of the reason Malcolm Smith went down. We've seen it time and again, time and again. And this could be a number of other politicians. Now, not everybody uses straw donors, but uh, almost everybody in public life that's elected does this. They fund groups that then give them donations that are matched. Now, the straw donors is where the illegality comes in. The rest of what people do, it's just unethical. But this system is coming to New York State. This is the meaning it's not just going to be New York City. It's going to be for everything. So you don't have any idea how difficult it is to audit and regulate just 51 seats that are doing this now. It's soon going to be 213 seats plus the three statewide offices, four if you count lieutenant governor. This is going to be a disaster. What you're seeing with Brian Benjamin, this is going to be multiplied by 213 This is going to be a disaster in the making. Let me take you back in time to when Kathy Hochul announced Brian Benjamin as her lieutenant governor. I am so delighted to announce my partner, and the word partner means something to me. Someone will work side by side in the trenches. Someone will be out there 
championing our policies and our administration's agenda in every corner of the state, but the real focus on New York City, because New York City needs our help. And this individual is someone who's been through the trenches, starting locally, working on his community board, working his way up to elective office, and someone I've become a dear friend of in the Senate. And I'm not just talking about our time in Albany, because as you know, I spend as little time there as possible. He has been a champion of criminal justice reform, affordable housing, and tenant protections, three huge priority of mine as well. And he's built a track record of great accomplishments already. Well, I guess now we know why he was such a big advocate of criminal justice reform. He's a looks like he's a criminal. We'll get into it with Fred Dicker straight ahead. WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, is it me or is... Albany, a lot less interesting than it used to be. Now, some people say it's because there's one party control controlling everything in state government these days. Some people say it's because we don't have Andrew Cuomo around to kick us anymore. But uh, for my money, it's because a staple of my morning listening is no longer there to provide incredible commentary, incredible insight, and incredible context to the issues that we're seeing in Albany on a regular basis. He's also someone that I uh, used to read on a regular and then a weekly basis in the pages of the New York Post. But I am thrilled that after much prodding and cajoling, he has accepted my invitation to appear with us early this morning. Uh, Very, very pleased to welcome a man who has forgotten more about state politics than most of us will ever know in five lifetimes. Veteran journalist, former state editor of and columnist for the New York Post, and a veteran radio talk show host in Albany as well, the one and only Fred Dicker. Fred, thanks so much for joining me on the radio. Hey, good morning, Frank, and thanks for that lovely build-up. Very, very nice of you, and I have to say that I miss hearing you and talking to you, so it's nice to be back together. It's great to have you. It's uh, It's been too long. Hey, do you miss, aside from talking to me, do you miss being on the radio every day uh, to be able to ruminate about whatever it is you want and be able to play kind of interesting folk music that fits in a theme? <laughs> or are you are you glad to not have to focus on some of the things that you found so frustrating about state government regularly? Let me uh, bifurcate that because the answer is both. I mean, on the one hand, I enjoyed a radio show. You know how satisfying it could be. I enjoyed the audience. I enjoyed uh, relaying what I thought was valuable information to listeners. But on the other hand, the uh, quality of the politicians in Albany and the direction of New York State has become so poor and so grim that I found myself depressing myself when I talked about it on the air. And I'm sure I was depressing many, many listeners. So I missed the first part the contact with the audience and the ability to convey information. But I don't miss the second part, which is describing dealing with the objective realities now in Albany. And state government has deteriorated to a point that in my lifetime, certainly in my 40 years covering state government, is at the lowest ebb imaginable. And I see the direction as being very poor. So I don't 
miss that side of things. Fred, let me begin with the big news of the day. I know that you're a gun owner, I think maybe even a collector of guns, and certainly on the radio, you're always a very outspoken uh, defender of the Second Amendment. I saw the press conference by the mayor, and he was focusing a great deal on the gun issue on the subway shooting uh, last night. What's your take on the subway shooting in general and the mayor's emphasis on getting guns off the streets? Well, you know, the mayor, like so many of these Democratic progressives, Frank, just talks about the gun as if the gun's responsible rather than talking about the perpetrators. But you have to get off the streets of the criminals, not legal gun owners. We don't know where this Glock, apparently it was a Glock that was used with a high-capacity magazine. We don't know where it originated. It could have been a stolen gun. could have been uh, some kind of a ghost gun. Uh, we, don't, we just don't know. But to me, the focus should be on the individuals who commit these crimes because it just as easily could have been a bomb. I could have knifed a number of people. It's amazing that nobody so far anyway, thank God, has been killed. 33 shots and no death. But, uh, you know, that said, he shouldn't have had that gun. Maybe there should have been more cops there on the, on the subways. Well, it certainly is. Uh, you said it. I mean, thank goodness this could have been a lot worse than it actually turned out to be. The other big news, uh, and this is right in your ballywick, is the resignation and the arrest of the lieutenant governor, Brian Benjamin. This has got to be the shortest tenure of any lieutenant governor in the history of New York State. I haven't double checked that. It's just my thinking. In your view, does this reflect a poor job of the vetting process <laughs> that Governor Kathy Hochul did here? <laughs> Absolutely. Frank, this is a disaster for Kathy Hochul. One would have loved to have been a fly on the wall during the day as she tried to to figure out how to get rid of Brian Benjamin. Imagine the people she's been speaking to. But uh, this is going to dog her, not just as a campaign issue, but we know that yesterday, or I should say earlier this week, was the deadline to get Brian Benjamin off her ticket. That deadline passed, and then he was criminally charged. So it appears he's going to be on the ballot with her in June for the primary. And they're trying to figure out now if there's any way to get him off. Legally, most people don't think that there is. So it's a huge burden to her. It's a statement about the quality of her vetting, about her judgment, obviously. And as recently as just a day or two ago, even though a lot of these allegations that led to Benjamin's arrest were known, she was still defending him. So she looks very, very bad, and deservedly so. And I'm sure it's hurting her not just with, um, with um, you know, marginal voters, but with her core Democratic voters who have to be wondering, should I vote for Kathy Hochul in a primary? Because there are two other people out there, Tom Swazi and Jamani Williams. I think the only way my reading of the election law is the only way that you, they can get him off the ballot is if he moves out of the state. I'm not sure he's going to volunteer for that uh, right if now. If he pled guilty and was convicted, if he walked into court and said, I'm guilty, he'd be off, I believe. But he's not going to do that. I mean, he could commit suicide or die accidentally. That would be another way. We certainly didn't hit from that. Um, so you're right. I mean, there's a possibility that they could put him into a judgeship slot, but apparently the judicial conventions where that would be done aren't until August, and the primaries mm. in June. What about the possibility, Frank? It could be the legislature could, I mean, the Democrats control Albany, could pass a law that might retroactively change the election calendar to let him get off. But after uh, that, which would be extraordinary, I don't see how he gets off. 
And there's still the court battle over the district lines, which, I mean, I know it's unlikely <laughs> at this point, but that could uh, push the primary back a little bit. Now, yeah. he was charged as part of a, a campaign finance uh, scam, basically, not alleged to have put any money in his own pocket, but doing favors for a developer giving some money, state money, to a developer that then used a whole bunch of straw donors to donate to his uh, candidacy for New York City controller. As you point out, as a now he's still on the ballot do you think as crazy as new york state has been electorally do you think there's any chance that he still wins this primary um there's a chance there are two other candidates for lieutenant governor in the primary and it could very well be it depends i mean you can't imagine a guy who's under criminal indictment is going to be out there campaigning but there could be an accident that occurs by the way the republicans of course frank would love that do you imagine if kathy hochel winds up winning her primary and then has as her running mate an accused federal senior. I mean, uh, just it would be unbelievable. I want to ask you about the uh, governor's race in a little bit. Now, in the meantime, he has resigned, and uh, under the Skelos versus Patterson decision, we now know the governor does have the right to appoint uh, a lieutenant governor to fill a vacancy. Patterson did it with Dick Ravitch. Hochul did it with Brian Benjamin. Do you think that she'll replace him in the interim or just leave the office vacant? (laughs) I think that she would need to replace him but can't because of just the – you know. Exigent circumstance. Uh, what's happening? The premier is just you know, two minutes away. So I would think what she. Well, no, I was talking about as would, as lieutenant governor, not necessarily on the ballot no, before the end of the year. Right. I think it would just be too, too confusing that she would not do it. There's no immediate obvious uh, person to choose. If there was, that would make a difference. But Frank, I think she would offend more people than she would satisfy if she just grabbed another person, made that person he or she lieutenant governor. And what do you gain with it? You don't need that right now, especially with the vote coming up in November. Yeah, that, that's fair. And uh, this is the now we've seen a governor and a lieutenant governor both recently resign in disgrace. And unfortunately, this has become all too regular. We've seen this with Elliot Spitzer. We saw this with the state controller, Alan Hevesy. We've seen this with majority leader of the state Senate after majority leader of the state Senate. We saw it with the speaker of the state assembly. Um, in your view, what is it about New York? Why are our politicians so corrupt or at at least seemingly so corrupt, or uh, why are they so bad at getting away with crimes? Those are all good questions. I think New York politics, especially New York City politics, is inherently corrupt. It's been historically corrupt that politics is seen by a lot of clever individuals as an alternative vehicle for getting rich without having to work in the private sector. And they understand if you stay around long enough, you can figure out ways for self-aggrandizement, both in terms of a monetary benefit and an ego benefit. And uh, ultimately, it's about power as well. But New York just does have a culture of corruption. It goes back to Tammany Hall. It goes back to other machines, the old O'Connell uh, Corning machine in Albany. And it's sad for the state. We suffer as a result. But the uh, bottom line is, if you look closely at Albany and at City Hall, both governments are in the hands of special interests who provide millions upon millions of dollars to individuals in, in exchange for corrupt actions. And these people have learned how to game the system. My favorite was Shelley Silver and how he pulled it off, where he used millions of dollars in state money to give a seemingly wonderful grant to a cancer researcher 
with the understanding that that cancer researcher, I think at Columbia University or NYU, would arrange to have cancer patients who were being helped go to Shelley Silver's law firm, and he would make millions of dollars from bringing those uh, clients to the firm for legal action. I mean, you know, there are all kinds of ways to make money off of government, and it's been a system perfected in New York State. I don't think there's a person that knows Andrew Cuomo's brain better than you do. You not only covered him as governor and as attorney general, but you covered his father as well. Uh, two yes. of the six governors that you have covered throughout your career as a and as an editor and as a journalist and as a radio talk show host were Cuomo's. A couple of days ago, petitions were due for the primaries, and it looks like Andrew Cuomo didn't file any petitions. A lot of people were predicting he would try to make a comeback, especially once he started doing these speeches, once he started running ads. Knowing Andrew Cuomo as you do and did, did you think that Cuomo would run in the primary against Kathy Hochul? I mean, this is the, uh, I was thinking about this the other day, uh, Frank, this is the 40th year, 2022, that I've known Andrew Cuomo, or from the time I first met him. So I followed him very, very closely. I knew him pretty darn well. You may recall that for a while I was writing a biography of him, supposedly, Mm -hmm. with his cooperation. So sometimes I would deal with him eight or ten times a day. He would call me up over and over again, six o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock at night. To some degree, his father was that way as well, a kind of an obsessive side. Well, without his background, let me just say, I'm not surprised at all that he didn't file petitions to run in a Democratic primary, and I don't think he'll file petitions because he still could to try to run as an independent. If there's a pariah politician in New York, if there's someone who's persona non grata, not just with voters, but with his own party and the elite of his party in particular, it's Andrew Cuomo. The guy is political dead meat, in my view. He has the baggage that, you know, is heavy enough that would sink him if he tried to run again. He couldn't win. All that said, I personally hope he does run. Run, Andy, run is a call that you hear a lot of times from Republicans. And I think it would be a great thing if he ran because he probably would guarantee the election of a, of a Republican governor because he still has some base of support based in the sense of there's a hardcore group out there. A lot of African-American voters, I think, are part of this. We've seen this in polls that will vote for the Cuomo name, kind of like on the Republican side where Andrew Giuliani gets a vote Mm -hmm. because of the Giuliani name. But it would not be enough for him to win. He would be buried by the women's organizations, the Me Too movement. He'd be buried by newspaper editorial writers. He'd be buried by his own party leaders. I mean, among others, Letitia James, the attorney general, is obviously his sworn enemy. She's a popular figure. And for all we know, she's going to bring or somebody's going to bring additional or not additional, but first criminal charges against Cuomo. He's still not out of the woods on the nursing home stuff, the favoritism for his family, and maybe most significantly, that $5.1 million Mm. outrageous contract he got for his book. So I don't think there's a chance he's going to run or file petitions 
to be an independent candidate. Now, Andrew Cuomo is a young man, and uh, as critical as we might be of his tenure as governor, uh, I don't think there's any doubting his his intellect and his talents in certain respects. And you know better than anybody how obsessive he is. I'm sure he spends 18 hours a day plotting <laughs> and thinking about his return to public life. Knowing Knowing his psyche as you do, what do you think Andrew Cuomo will do next, professionally, personally, in life? <clears throat> well, let me just say, your description of him is an accurate one. I mean, he does obsess on politics. He obsesses on whatever the crusade of the moment is. And he obsesses, most importantly, on raising his profile or trying to have a profile. I mean, he's brought, he and his brother have brought such humiliation on the Cuomo family I mean, in one sense, he's probably grateful that his father is no longer alive to see what he did to the governorship and to the name of Cuomo in this state. I think, you know, you touched on what he's doing. He's trying kind of like a bull in a china shop, trying to figure out a way, whether it's running these TV commercials, running. I just saw one of his commercials online, trying to figure out a way that he can recoup his reputation and get back into public life because he just feeds off public attention. But I think because of uh, what's occurred and what I've described and what we've both talked about, there's not a chance he can do that. So I think he's just going to be out there kind of almost like a tragic figure. I mean, some people have suggested to me he might wind up shooting himself or something. And I certainly hope nothing like that happens. But short of exiting stage left very quickly, I can't imagine him being center stage ever again in New York or nationally. And as I noted, I think he still has some struggles ahead, some danger for himself Mm. in terms of the possibility of a criminal indictment. Can you give the audience any insight? You've known so many politicians and governors over the last four decades. What What is it about Andrew Cuomo's personality or his management style, or both, that make him so unique? Uh, because th- I think even rank-and-file New Yorkers who haven't gotten to know politicians uh, up close and personal as you have, and as I have to some extent, even they can tell there's something a little different about Andrew Cuomo. From your interactions no. with him and his staff, what it is it that, that is different? Well, I think you're right. I mean, he's a very, very interesting guy, largely because of who his father was. Uh, Mario Cuomo was an extraordinary orator. He was an important national figure. The Democrats celebrated him. And Andrew Cuomo, the son, grew up in his shadow. And he was, interestingly enough, I mean, most people I don't think are aware of this, Frank, he was often the brunt of criticisms by his father, who Mm. considered him, Mario, considered Andrew to be something of a non-intellectual, kind of a street guy, and his father didn't approve of that. And Andrew was a guy who wanted to prove himself to his father, to his family, to get out of the shadow of his father. And he's also possessed of, you know, physical strength. He's an imposing guy. When you see him, I've had people say to me they find him frightening. He's articulate. He's obviously, as you touched on, very bright. But he doesn't have the intellectual element that his father had, and he doesn't have the values that his father had. A bottom line on Andrew Cuomo within Democratic circles was that he's a man of transactional orientation, that there's no core value to him. Everything was a transaction to advance himself 
to get notoriety, get attention. And, hey, he was a member of the president's cabinet. He was attorney general of New York. He was twice twice elected as governor of New York. I mean, or three times. Uh, he, um, he does possess qualities of charisma, physical strength, hard work, and, uh, you know, vision. People used to say, well, he plays three-dimensional chess. He always has various games going on. Well, he outsmarted himself. He was too mm. cute by half. And he doesn't have, just to get back to one point I made, and I think it's accurate, he doesn't seem to have the core values of a genuine person who leaves people impressed with their qualities. And that's something that his father, Mario Cuomo, did have. If people just tuning in, we're talking with Fred Dicker, a veteran journalist covering uh, Albany and state politics in general for about four decades. You know, I remember when Andrew Cuomo first became governor, he did more radio show interviews with you than he did with every other any other outlet in the state. He seemed to really enjoy coming on with you, seemed to uh, and, and you both in your column and on the show seemed pretty laudatory towards him. What was it that changed? I know the issues that you were most vocal about early on were fracking and the SAFE Act. Was it just those two issues or was there more to it? What caused you to sort of, I hate to put it this way, but to turn on Andrew Cuomo? No, that's an accurate description. I was with Andrew Cuomo to the extent that I felt Cuomo stood for the changes that New York needed. I mean, New York is a dying state. It was dying 10 years ago or 11 years ago when he came in, driving away residents of upstate New York, a declining quality of life in New York City, a business hostile atmosphere, the likes of which other than California, I don't think you could find in this country. Andrew Cuomo promised to reverse all that. And the background of Andrew Cuomo is the disaster of Elliot Spitzer, the incompetence of David Patterson, and the failures of George Pataki, three other governors, to deliver on what he promised to do. Andrew Cuomo said he was a moderate Democrat who was going to turn New York around. I thought that was a wonderful message he was delivering. It wasn't just about fracking, which could have been a, a wonderful benefit to the southern tier of New York, which is the poorest part of the state as a region. It wasn't about the SAFE Act, because that, to me, was just an example of Andrew Cuomo's lying because he had assured me he wasn't going to war on the Second Amendment in New York. And then he was an opportunist and did that. But what it was about could be summed up in the, in his turn, Frank, in late 2011, in his first year, in the wake of the Occupy Wall Street movement that led him to abandon his promised commitment to lower taxes in New York, turn the state around as a business-friendly state, help residents who were struggling with the high tax burden that we have in New York, which outside of New York City, people, a lot of people don't realize how high the taxes are. They're the highest, not only in the nation, but they're just extraordinarily um, confiscatory for many middle-class people who can't afford to pay property taxes and gasoline taxes and other taxes. So bottom line is Andrew Cuomo got frightened by the Occupy Wall Street movement. He then got frightened by... Bobby Kennedy, his former brother-in-law and the environmental activist on the uh, issue of, uh, of uh, fracking for natural gas, and he became a different person. I mean, I watched it happen. So that was the reason that there was this kind of turnaround on my part in covering him, but it was based on the substance of his 
policies where he abandoned the promises of his election in 2010. I think you did a great job comparing and contrasting the the ideology, the skills, the talents of Mario and Andrew Cuomo. Do you think the way that Andrew Cuomo's tenure for governor ended, largely in disgrace and a, a stone's throw being charged with a crime, do you think that that legacy, which I think in spite of whatever accomplishments that Andrew Cuomo had, will now be viewed as negatively throughout the future of uh, of New York politics, do you think Andrew's misdeeds will have a negative effect on Mario Cuomo's legacy as governor? I think it will, and I think it already has. I think this has to put it in historical uh, context. Andrew Cuomo's resignation as governor is really unprecedented. And to resign in the face of the scandals that he resigned in the face of, and the virtual certainty of impeachment which has only happened once before with William Sulzer in 1913 in New York, uh, has badly damaged with the younger people in particular, the Cuomo name and legacy and the uh, outrageous allegations against him, whether it's uh, 10 or 12 women claiming he was sexually harassing them or the responsibility for the death of thousands of seniors in nursing homes, using his public office to make $5 million and doing it on the sly and maybe illegally using state personnel to help him do that. None of this has a precedent in New York history. So I think the Cuomo name is irretrievably damaged, and that includes Mario. And Andrew Cuomo himself will be remembered for many, many decades as the embodiment of the decline of the quality of New York politicians. More than 10 years ago, the New York Times did a profile on you. Uh, Very interesting, pretty complimentary. But they quoted Mario Cuomo, who was still alive at the time. And he seemed to relish telling the Times this story of when the journalists played a baseball game against Mario (laughs) Cuomo and his staff. And he seemed to really enjoy telling a story about you dropping a ball or misplaying a ball uh, that uh, allowed the uh, the Cuomo team to win. Uh, I'm wondering if you can add a little insight into exactly what happened with the game. Was Mario Cuomo's reflection accurate? How did that game come to be and what happened? Well, it used to be traditional for the LCA, the Legislative Correspondence Association, a group of journalists who cover state government, to be pretty friendly at times with uh, the governor and his staff. The governor traditionally holds a party for the LCA every year, and we used to play basketball games, softball games, even football at times with going way back to Hugh Carey. We played flag football. So there was this game. This was the big game. Much to my uh, disappointment, it was being played late in the evening, and it was dark, and I don't have great eyesight. Mm. I was in uh, right field, I believe, and bases were loaded. We were ahead, I think, by one or two points, and there is no doubt that a ball was hit to me, and because of the darkness, I had trouble seeing it, and um, actually, I was distracted, too, by something, but that, that's no excuse. And the ball did go under my legs. But here's a kicker fun part of the story. After the game, and needless to say, I felt terrible about what happened. After the game, we were invited back to the pool house at the governor's mansion for an award ceremony, right? And guess what the award was that was given to me? Mario Cuomo himself gave me the award as the most valuable player for his team. <laughs> Talk about humiliation. 
Thankfully, I won awards for good journalism and only won the one bad award for a bad for the softball game. But it's a true story. That is that's terrific. You alluded to the uh, challenges that Governor Pataki faced. Uh, it, it's difficult to imagine now with the Democrats controlling a supermajority in both legislature, both houses of the legislature and all of the statewide offices. But there was a time when Republicans seemed to control everything in state government. They controlled the state Senate. They controlled the mayoralty in New York. They controlled the governor's mansion, one of the two U.S. Senate seats and the attorney general's seat. Uh, They uh, controlled all but one or two of the state offices. Do you think the failures of Republican leadership in New York state, including by Governor Pataki, might have led to what came afterwards, the dominance that we're now seeing by the Democrats in state government. By the way, let me compliment you on your memory on uh, you know, the, the tremendous power at one time that uh, Republicans had in New York, and he did uh, tick off accurately all the offices that they held. Well, look, uh, there are a couple of uh, several factors involved. One of the biggest ones is a demographic factor. A lot of the Republican voters who elected Rudy Giuliani and Ben Bloomberg, who supported George Pataki, have either died off or moved out of state. And, of course, we know upstate has continued the massive loss of population, and upstate used to be the Republican base. So the shift in the alliances, the shift in uh, demographics, the shift in enrollments has been profound. Added to that, though, uh, George Pataki came into office promising to be a conservative Republican when he left. He was indistinguishable from a liberal Democrat on most issues. In fact, one study that was done by the Empire Center found that uh, George Pataki was spending at a higher level than Mario Cuomo ever did in his final four years. Uh, Pataki also uh, double-crossed many Republicans. Joe Bruno, you remember, as a Senate Majority Leader, was a pretty conservative, if not very conservative, Republican. He tried to change a lot of things, in my view, for the better, and he was double-crossed by Pataki. Pataki did that back in 1997, 1998, in order to try to help then-U.S. Senator Al D'Amato survive in the face of a challenge from Chuck Schumer. Mm-hmm. And D'Amato did not survive. D'Amato was a tremendous fundraiser for the New York State Republicans. The loss of D'Amato and then this um, uh, gradual evolution of George Pataki into in being indistinguishable for many liberal Democrats, I think, were the contributing were the manifestations mm. of what you were describing. But the bottom line was that the change in population in New York, I think, was a very big factor. Do you see, assuming Andrew Cuomo does not run as a third party candidate, do you see any scenario in which the general election can be competitive this year for governor? I do. I think that there is a chance for Republicans. And I think Lee Zeldin, who I'm personally supporting, uh, has, has the best chance to be the Republican uh, victor as governor uh, this year. But you put together a combination of factors, whether it's the very severe crime problem in New York, the unpopularity of Democrats, not just in New York, but nationally, uh, some of the um, uh, school reform movements and the direction they're taking, the anger over uh, masking of young children in New York City, there are so many issues. The uh, fact that uh, Kathy Hochul, who's virtually certain to be the Democratic nominee, is really unknown in New York City and hasn't exactly chalked up a stellar record. I think there's an outside chance for someone like Aziz Eldon, who will be well-funded, by the way, 
and this is going to be a big Republican year, there is a chance for Republicans to take back some seats in the Senate. I don't think they can take the majority, but they could end the veto-proof majority that the Democrats have right now. And I think they could win statewide office for governor. Uh, any thoughts? You remember what a uh, what an ordeal it was sitting through late budget after late budget. We just finally passed the budget in New York this time around. There's a number of controversial aspects uh, to it. Uh, and now, you know, it's it's really less of a budget and more of an omnibus policy making document. But there's been a lot of controversy about the funding for health care for illegal aliens. There's been a lot of com- uh, f- uh, controversy over the funding for the new Buffalo Bills Stadium. Generally, I know maybe you don't follow the budget process as closely as you did when you were the state editor of the Post or doing the daily radio show. Any thoughts on this year's budget and how it's shaped out? Well, I did try to follow it pretty closely, and my thoughts are it's business as usual. Uh, Kathy Hochul, the governor who took over, she was lieutenant governor, took over for Andrew Cuomo, promised reforms. There are no reforms whatsoever. Um, not just the biggest spending ever, but a blowout spending budget using federal monies that are one-time allocation that's going to leave New York in a hole. Kathy Hochul only cares about winning election on her own and surviving the Democratic primary. The legislative leaders are the most uh, mediocre leaders that I've ever seen in my 40-some years covering state government, um, whether you know it's Carl Hasty or the Stewart Cousins. They seem more controlled and concerned about criminals in New York than they do legal taxpayers in New York. So I think it's a horrendous budget, worse than anyone could have imagined. The very good Wall Street Journal editorial, and I think the Post did it too, very good editorials on this. It's just disappointing because it means more problems down the road, learning no lessons from the past, Frank. They just make this state more and more hostile, not just to businesses, but to wealthy people who are moving in droves to Florida. I have a place down in Florida. It's boomtown. USA, where I am down in Florida, and it's going to continue that way. You know, people may be surprised listening to your commentary on everything from the cost of living to uh, energy to guns. But uh, in your youth, you know, you you had some left of center leanings. I I know you were involved in the anti-atomic bomb movement. You were uh, co-chairman of the core chapter at uh, Long Island University and even at one time the leader of a, a young socialist club. I'm wondering if you could... Talk a little bit about your evolution from somebody that would be left of center to someone that's one of the most articulate voices for the problems of leftist extremism these days. Well, you know, I'm reading a new book by David Mamet, the political uh, or the uh, famous Pulitzer Prize winning playwright. He grew up in Chicago as what was known as a red diaper baby. And I grew up in the Bronx. And uh, did hang around with serious leftists, as you touched on, including members of the Communist Party. So I was oriented, obviously, to the left as a college student and grad student. I even headed two SDS chapters. People don't know what that was. Students for Democratic Society, the left-wing group. But, uh, you know, it's a classic case, in my case. First of all, I was somebody who was always open-minded. I tried to understand what was going on. But the bottom line is, when I got out into the real world, and journalism back then especially, but today too, I'm sure, is a wonderful way to learn about the real world. The more I kind of bumped up against a lot of the assumptions I had about the nature of our society, the more I modified my views. 
And I grew up at a time when the civil rights movement was critical. I mean, it was a heroic movement. The Vietnam War was raging. The concern about uh, nuclear warfare, very real. I'm sure you remember some of that as well. But it was gradually as a journalist, as I learned how government functioned at the lowest level. I didn't start out covering high-level state government or national government. I covered school boards. I covered planning boards, little towns and villages. I liked the people I was meeting. I knew I learned they were sincere. I thought the assumptions about evil capitalism, when I see these local companies providing jobs for people, were stupid. I got to know police officers and uh, uh, correction officers and you know, nice people trying to have families and do their jobs. So over the years, I moderated. But at the state capitol, when I learned about what politicians were really like at a pretty high level, and back then, the likes of Hugh Carey and Mario Cuomo were considered presidential timber. And I saw how their policies were hurting things. These were liberal Democrats. And as I got to know Republicans, and growing up in the Bronx, there weren't too many of them. But as I got to know them, I found Republicans to be, frankly, nicer people, more honest people, more sincere, and Democrats to be kind of calculating demagogues. And I got to know people on both sides very, very well. And I found that the Republicans, I thought, were much more realistic and concerned about the everyday lives of people, much more so than Democrats who were oriented to giving away things all the time, spending our money and on money that uh, taking money that people couldn't afford and giving it to people oftentimes who didn't deserve that money. And I saw the culture of dependence explode in New York. I mean, New York government, Frank, is controlled by labor unions and special interest uh, pleaders, hospitals, healthcare industry, the healthcare workers unions, the teachers unions. Our government in Albany is in the possession of special interests who feed off it like parasites on a dying body. And that metaphor, which is pretty harsh, I think is nevertheless accurate for what we see in New York today. Lastly, Fred, I know you spent a good portion of your life here in New York, growing up in the Bronx and then spending so many years working in the capital region. You mentioned that you have a place in Florida now and you spend a lot of time down there. These days, and I hear the way that you describe life in Florida, and it almost sounds like, um, you know, comparing East and West Berlin, a land of freedom versus a land of uh, oppression. Do you view yourself still as a New Yorker or have you come to view yourself as a Floridian, as so many former New Yorkers, including a lot of listeners to this show, have come to view themselves? Well, let me just give you just a quick uh fact uh, that illustrates why I no longer think of myself as a New Yorker and feel that New York is on a terminal track to destruction. Florida has two million more people now than New York. I mean, New York used to be the biggest state in the nation. And we slipped into California, the Texas, and then Florida about four years ago. Two million more people in Florida than New York. Yet Florida's state budget is half the size of New York's. And you see it and feel it throughout Florida. Small businesses all over the place, people who are thriving, more work than one can imagine, happier people, and a, no sense that government is intruding in your lives the way it does in New York. So to answer your question, I'm not quite a Floridian fully yet, but I feel that I'm no longer a New Yorker. And I say that with much regret because I used mm. to be proud to be from New York, but I am, I'm not any longer. 
Until you are doing the early bird blue plate special on a daily basis, I don't know that you can ever (laughs) fully wear that label as Floridian. Fred, I appreciate you being so generous with your time at such an odd hour, and uh, I'll look forward to our next conversation. Frank, and I appreciate what you do at such an odd hour. You do it excellently. Your knowledge is important. And I'm sure your listeners fully appreciate it. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. Very kind. The great Frederick Udicker. And uh, we miss his voice on the radio. That is for sure. Irrespective of your politics, is certainly a uh, great radio talent, uh, the likes of which uh, doesn't come along often. If you want to comment on any portion of our discussion, you're welcome to give me a call. 1-800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano, 77 WABC. City on rock and roll. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Um, we're going to take your calls in a minute at 800-848-922 if you want to respond to uh, my discussion with Fred Dicker. You know, there's always a price that we pay for the actions that we take, right? There's always, especially if you're in radio, uh, you, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. Or as uh, the the Sean Connery character on Saturday Night Live would say, you live by the S word, you die by the S word. Now, I um, last um, Friday, you'll recall, I denounced... Our program director, Matt Meany. Now, we don't need to get into why. Matt's a good guy, a friend of mine. But he did something that required a denunciation. Go back and listen to the podcast if you want to find out why. And so today, I received a memo that in essence says that at the end of the show, now, the show's supposed to end at 5 o'clock. So I received a memo that said at 5 o'clock, the show no longer ends at five at five o'clock. That now I have to be out, done, signed, sealed, delivered, out the door by four fifty-eight forty, a full minute and twenty seconds sooner than I had been leaving. So now I really feel like the big loser in this whole situation is you, the listener. Because you're now shortchanged of me for a minute and 20 seconds. So uh, I guarantee you this is somehow retribution for me denouncing Matt Meany last week. Guarantee it. Guarantee it. There were reports, uh, you know, he was like like responding to an anonymous whistleblower. The big uh, memo on this, the six people copied. And the first sentence is, 
it has been brought to my attention that there are multiple instances in which the other side of midnight goes past 5 a.m. I'm not sure that's true, but whatever. So now we have to be out at five at 4.58.40. Now, I protested, but and I have been told that this is only a temporary situation. So what I've decided to do is that to get that minute and 20 seconds back, I am going to make the I have something big planned for the racket report next week. I am going to make the racket report podcast each week a minute and 20 seconds longer. So if you haven't been listening, be sure to tune in at uh, just search the racket report wherever you get your podcast, iTunes, Spotify, wherever. So I hate to lose that minute and 20 seconds. And I apologize to you on behalf of management that uh, that you have to lose it. Apparently, that's the case. Howard is, and so I'm sorry if my denunciation ended up in you being shortchanged of a minute and 20 seconds of quality content. Howard is in Elmhurst. Hello, Howard. Hi, how are you, Frank? Uh, I just wanted to say, actually, I wanted to talk about something else that you spoke about before, and that was the love for special places in New York. And one of the, you know, the way you expressed uh, your feelings about that cheese shop was wonderful. I was a Big Apple greeter, and the whole group of people that did it for the city, taking foreigners and people from different parts of the country. Ha- Howard, do me a favor. I want you, I'm want. i going to put you back on hold. We're going to start with you, uh, because lest I, I go into the next hour, I don't want to be the subject of another memo. Hang tight, Howard. We'll get to you first. Um, if you want to be heard on any subject, 800-848-9222. We're going to talk about Gilbert Gottfried next hour. Very much looking forward to that. In the meantime, in the words of the great uh, Bob Grant, your influence counts. Do make sure that you use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, So some very troubling numbers yesterday that came out. Inflation has accelerated to 8.5% in March. 8.5%. That is a new four-decade high. Uh, Prices are changing so quickly Soaring costs online are flashing another warning for the Fed. And, you know, just to go back to my discussion with Ellen Wald yesterday about gas prices, she wrote a very interesting column in The Hill about the things that President Biden could do aside from lowering the strategic, um, you know, tapping into the strategic petroleum reserve that would actually lower gas prices. And one of them is to get actually get a hold of inflation. Because it's sort of cyclical. The higher energy prices go, 
even though they say energy and food is not factored into the cost of inflation, of course it is. Because if your stuff, whatever you're buying, costs more to ship it there by truck, then it's going to go into the price of whatever you're buying. But um, so it is troubling. This inflation news is bad news. But I read a fascinating piece over the weekend. I believe it was in The Hustle where we learned what really leads to more inflation. It's not gas prices. Maybe it's not even the supply chain shortage. It's not low interest rates. There's one thing that really leads to inflation. It is... Think... I'm not joking. Thinking about inflation. Oh, yes, that's right. America is now dealing with its worst inflation in nearly 40 years, and it could get worse if inflationary psychology takes hold. Now, the public is bracing for price hikes because all you see, you hear shows like this, you uh, see television shows, you read the paper, all you hear is inflation, 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 inflation. And now um, the polling suggests that in, that Americans believe inflation is a problem. 57% of Americans say their wages are not keeping up with price hikes. 45% of Americans plan to seek new jobs looking for higher salaries. And listen to this, 51% of businesses expect to raise prices in the next six months. So this all leads to conditions that are ripe for a pretty perplexing phenomenon. And it's a psychological phenomenon as much as it is an economic one. Richard Curtin, who is an economist at the University of Michigan, told The Hustle, this is the complete dynamic that you need to develop inflationary psychology. Now, what is inflationary psychology? One, consumers speed up purchases or seek higher salaries because they believe prices will rise in the future. I have to buy that airline ticket today because it's going to be more expensive next week. I have to buy that house today because it's going to be more expensive next month. I have to buy that refrigerator today because it's going to be more expensive next month. Hey, I'm only making $100,000. My salary can't keep up with what I'm doing. I've got to find a job that will pay me at least $130,000 so that my wages will keep up with inflation. That's the consumer end of inflationary psychology. Businesses raise prices in anticipation that costs will go up in the future. I've got a hardware store. I've got a grocery store. i got a bagel shop. Well, you know, it's going to cost me more to get my supplies here next month. Let me raise prices now so that when my supplier raises prices on me, I'm not caught flat-footed. So the customers speeding up purchases the customers, consumers seeking higher salaries because they believe prices are going to rise and the businesses preemptively raising prices in anticipation that costs will go up in the future. It leads to even more inflation and it does make sense. So to really understand this phenomenon, you have to step back to the roots of America's current inflation problem. February of 2022, prices across all American goods were up 
7.9% compared to February 2021. The average American is expected to need an additional $5,000 this year to live the same life they did last year. So economists have pointed to three root causes for this. Supply uh, sh- supply shortages from COVID, higher than expected demand, and Russia's war against Ukraine. We've gone over all three of these ad infinitum. I won't, I won't bother repeating all the reasons that each of those is a factor. Now, here's where inflationary psychology comes in. If average people and businesses expect inflation to continue far into the future, regardless of whether steps have been taken to reduce the original causes of inflation, expectations for high inflation leads to three trends. Workers ask for raises to hedge against the rising prices they've experienced. Consumers accelerate the purchases of goods to avoid higher prices in the future. Research has shown that households are 8% more likely to buy durable goods, cars, refrigerators, etc., when they expect a bump in inflation. And then businesses increase future prices after forecasting rising prices and robust consumer demand. And now they have to pay for all those high salaries. So in other words, the perceived need for a higher salary and for higher prices to withstand future inflation leads to higher prices and higher salaries. Makes sense? I know it sounds weird, but it makes sense. And and inflation keeps churning on. This cycle is like a game of musical chairs. Businesses and people know inflation will end at some point. But they want to obtain the best possible outcome before it's over. So they race around the circle faster and faster and faster, asking for more wages and sending costs higher and higher. The deeper inflationary psychology takes hold, the harder it is to shake off and the longer the cycle continues. So this is a big problem. President Nixon talked about this 50 years ago. He said inflationary psychology had gripped our nation so tightly for so long. And he's right. He tried to stop this by instituting wage and price controls, but the plan failed. His successor, Gerald Ford, organized the Whip Inflation Now campaign, urging disciplined spending habits and personal savings. That didn't work either. So this this cycle of inflation, the the Nixon-Ford cycle of inflation, which started in 1965, it didn't end until the early 80s. When then Fed Chair Paul Volcker, probably the last really good one that we had, increased interest rates from 10 percent to 20 percent, crashing the economy into a recession in the process. But we did break the back of inflation. Every administration, according to this Professor Curtin, thought they had the power to end inflation, but they really didn't. And I think now this is Curtin speaking, not me. Now you can see that same sense of overconfidence in the ability of the government to control inflation. Now, the good news is 10 percent of respondents were buying goods now out of fear of price increases, mostly for houses. In the 70s, that rate was 50 percent. The bad news is 49 percent of respondents unfavorably assessed the federal government's economic policies. That share was up 
from 37% in uh, February of last year. The lack of confidence means many Americans fear the government is not doing the right thing to stop inflation. And the great fear of inflationary psychology is that perception is going to turn into reality. What does this mean for you and me? Well, do you remember when um, Kramer is frustrated with the lack of daylight on Seinfeld? What did he do? He set his clock ahead by an hour. He started his own daylight saving time just for himself, in spite of what the rest of the world was doing. He set his clock ahead an hour. So I, and I hope you will join me, I am deciding right here, right now, at 312 in the morning on April 13th, that I am now deciding I no longer believe in inflation. I am now opting out of the inflationary psychology game. I am not going to rush to buy goods because I think they're going to be more expensive next week or the week after that. I'm not going to ask for a higher salary. In fact, I may ask my employer to lower my salary. That's how confident I am in opting out of inflationary psychology. Count me out. I'm not going to talk about inflation if I can help it. I'm not going to spend like I'm worried about inflation. I'm going to go back to what comes natural to me, procrastinating as long as possible for purchases. I'm not going to ask my employer for more money. Forget it. In fact, I'm going to start giving more of my money away to people. So what I would ask is that you join me. Join me in the no inflationary psychology pledge. Now, when Josh from, uh, I think it was Rockland County called in the other day, and we talked about the problem with plea bargaining, I asked him to join me in my no plea pledge. So now, if either Josh or me are indicted, we're not going to take a plea. I would ask that you join me on the no plea pledge, because that would actually force some of these prosecutors to try some cases. In addition to that, I'm asking that you join me in the decision to opt out of inflationary psychology. Will you join me? 800-848-WABC. We're going to talk with Bruce Charrett about uh, Gilbert Gottfried in just a few minutes. Bruce is a, a legendary manager, producer, uh, impresario in the world of comedy, and he's been a friend of Gilbert's for 35 years. So we're going to talk to him about Gilbert Gottfried's incredible life and career. Uh, but first, uh, before the uh, top of the new hour news came on, we were talking with Howard in Elmhurst. Howard, uh, let me allow you to make your point uninterrupted and unabridged. Go ahead. Thank you very much, Frank. I, uh, I, I'm still a great fan of Gilbert Gottfried, and, uh, but I, I, I'll take that honor. Um, so anyway, I was a Big Apple greeter, the most unique group of people love New York, and uh, it was wonderful. And when, when they, sometimes when a place would close it would, and people would discuss it at meetings or potluck dinners that we had, it was almost like going to a funeral. There was such a love for New York, and we, we, we were the diplomats for New York. We wanted New York to shine, and it was just wonderful, and um, the spirit. And we had great leadership and, you know, 
and we would go out of our way to help our clients. We would, I had one woman, she uh, she broke her ankle, and I got her a wheelchair. I wanted to get her a wheelchair. She already found one near a hotel near Times Square, but uh, it was this feeling, this this unity of feeling about for the love of New York. We never discussed politics, and we're very proud of what we did. And everybody had a specialty of a different neighborhood, so it was a, a very enjoyable part of my life. And how come you stopped? Why did you stop being a Big Apple greeter? The tourists coming from overseas stopped. I see. I see. But they still have them, don't they? They do, yes. I see. All right. They take the people who were the longest. I was one of the people that came in later. I had been doing it maybe two years. Well, I think um, I think that's a great service. Uh, people don't know these these are volunteers that basically are courteous and they uh, they want, welcome people and they meet people. They share their knowledge of New York City culture, and I think that's a big part of um, New York City and what makes it so great as well. So uh, I say, uh, good for you, good for you there, Howard. And uh, I, uh, I I appreciate you calling in to reminisce a little bit about New York the way it used to be. Thank you so much. And be well, and thank you for your contribute, uh, contributions to New York. Thank you, Howard. 800-848-WABC. Russell is in White Plains. Hello, Russell. Hi, Frank. Volcker was appointed by Carter, right? Volcker was appointed yeah, by he Carter. He was appointed by Carter and then reappointed by Reagan, yes. Right. So, I mean, Carter sacrificed himself uh, for the good of the country. I don't think Biden's going to do that. I'd like to talk about Andy the engineer and the greasy f- fingerprints all over this Brian Benjamin thing. Um, you know who is the, the lawyer for the accuser, this guy, Migdal, right? You saw who the lawyer for I, him I, I didn't. Tell me. Jerry Goldfeder. Ah! Yeah. Very interesting. Now, I know Jerry. Jerry yeah. is certainly a very accomplished election lawyer. I've been on the same side with him sometimes and on opposite sides. But just so folks know... Uh, Jerry Goldfeder has historically been pretty close to Andrew Cuomo and even worked for Cuomo in the state attorney general's office. Excellent catch. I did not see that. Yeah. Why would this guy who's facing criminal charges pick an election law guy unless it was something arranged? He was arrested a year ago. Now, all of a sudden, the timing just before this guy, Benjamin, can be replaced. uh, Cuomo has a list. He's got a list. He went after Ron Kim. He almost got Ron Kim on the nail salon thing. He's gone after Spitzer, Paddish, and Schneiderman. It doesn't end. This guy is an evil that lurks within our our government here. And if we don't do something about it, it's just going to keep hitting on us. So, so did you do you think uh, that tweet that I referenced earlier from Chris Cuomo with the palm cross over the menu? Do you and with the weird hashtag? Do you think that was sort of uh, a a harbinger of things to come? A palm cross over a menu? You know, I don't tweet. I'm, I'm not sure. Is that like? Uh, Carrying a cross and wrapped in a flag. Well, last... it was you know it's that he also um, he also had uh, the hashtag. He said this is what went with the photo. And again, this was not on Palm Sunday. It was the day after Palm Sunday, so huh. really no reason to do it. But it says, and so we begin again. And then it said hashtag rebirth and renewal. So okay. I thought that was pretty interesting. And retaliation. Well, he didn't mention that, but I think it is interesting. Russ, thanks for pointing that out. 800-848-WABC. That's one 800 
two two. Pete is on Staten Island. Hello, Pete. Good morning, Frank. Great show, and good to hear from Russell. Haven't heard him in a while. And, uh, you know, with this thing that happened on the train, very frightening. I'm looking forward to uh, back to the beach if they've been having it. I'm, I'm going to try to call the borough president's office and find out if they're going to have it this year because uh, I really don't like to travel anywhere. And, uh, you know, what we could do, I heard you say you want to give your money away with the information. So you could meet me at the bagel shop, and what we'll do, I'll put an envelope with a thousand for you, and you put an envelope for a thousand for me, and we won't feel that bad at the grocery store <laughs> because it's your person. <laughs> All right, Pete. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. So we are going to talk about Gilbert Gottfried in a little bit. Uh, Gilbert was a a wonderful entertainer. He was one of my favorites, and we're going to get into some of the highlights of his career and what he was like behind the scenes with Bruce Charrett in uh, in just a few minutes. But um, Gilbert was incredible for a few reasons. One, he just had this incredible voice. And he had a voice that was absolutely indistinguishable, that was absolutely inimitable. As soon as he said anything, didn't matter if he said the word applesauce, you knew it was Gilbert Gottfried. He was also very versatile. He could do commercials. He could be the voice of an animated show or an animated movie. He could be a, an actor in um, in action movies. He could be an actor in comedies. He was a podcast host. He was a stand-up. The guy was everything. And who could forget this classic moment in the film Beverly Hills Cop? dissuade you in any way from entering my office. Sir, we're at the Beverly Hills Police Department. Are you Mr. Sidney Bernstein? Yes, lucky guess. Well, sir, you have 25 unpaid parking tickets. We have a warrant for your arrest. 25? Tw- what 25? You what? have 25 unpaid parking tickets, sir? I, I, I pay my tickets. I pay I pay all my tickets. Sir, do you own a black Mercedes-Benz license plate number CRL 507? 507? That's my wife's car. That's not my car. That's my... 25 unpaid yeah, parking I mean, tickets. It's under my name, but it's my wife's car. No, no, no. That voice, that voice. Uh, So recently, I guess it was about seven or eight years ago, he was on the show The Celebrity Apprentice with uh, Donald Trump, obviously, as the host. And it was an interesting year that year. You had, I think, Meatloaf was on that year. And uh, Johnny Damon, I believe, was on that year. Uh, Geraldo Rivera was on that year. And Gilbert was hysterical on that show, including when he's complaining about cold. Are there any questions? I'm wondering why we have to stand outside in the freezing cold when we could be in a warm office. Uh, so I guess I never really watched The Apprentice, but I guess on The Apprentice or The Celebrity Apprentice, they give you these different projects to make, these different projects to do, to work on for your charity. All the celebrities play for a charity. And Gilbert was on Geraldo's team and their charity, their their project was making pies. So they made pies and they had to sell pies for charity. And uh, this is a little bit of Gilbert making some pies. We were making pies with Geraldo's face on it. Basically, it looked like Geraldo on acid, but I was working. 
it was right up to my intellect. So, um, you know, it's funny because Joe Piscopo, I was working with him at the time, and he is very good friends with Gilbert Gottfried, and they they were very close. And in fact, they were on Saturday Night Live together. He he, you, people forget that Gilbert Gottfried was on Saturday Night Live back in 1980. And uh, he didn't really take off to the extent that Joe Piscopo did. And then a little bit later, Eddie Murphy did. But they've, they've been friends for 40 years, maybe even before that. I think they were friends in the clubs, in the comedy clubs in New York before before they were on Saturday Night Live together. So uh, Gilbert calls Joe Piscopo up and says, hey, you know, we're trying to get a lot of celebrities down here to buy some pies. Why don't you come down? Now, Joe knew that I was a fan of Gilbert Gottfried, and he invites me down. And I, at this time, I was friendly with Geraldo as well, and Geraldo was at that thing, and he invites me down. So Joe and I went down to buy some pies. And, uh, and you know, it's funny. I never really saw it on television. And then when Molly was uh, was editing these these clips and she said that one of them was from this pie thing, I said, oh, that's funny. Maybe, um, maybe, maybe... I don't know. I remember being there at the time. So we went down and I just watched this clip and you see me in the clip. You don't hear me say anything, but I'm standing to the right of Joe Piscopo. So if you want to see it, I just put a photo of it, a screenshot of it of uh, Joe Piscopo, me, and Gilbert Gottfried. And I got to meet him a bunch of times after that. Joe was very kind to introduce us. Now, it's so funny, because my Uncle John, he's not really my uncle, but I call him my uncle. My Uncle John is the world's biggest fan of Gilbert Gottfried. The world's biggest fan. And I've always known what a fan he was of Gilbert Gottfried. So he, um, I ask Gilbert, if he wouldn't mind talking to my Uncle John. Now, how obnoxious is that of me? Now, I, I, again, I wouldn't do it if it was anybody but my Uncle John or a close family member. And if it was if it was somebody that they didn't have as much a fondness for as they did for Gilbert Godfrey. Because I know people hate that stuff. I hate that. When people ask me, hey, uh, can you talk to my cousin Ishmael? Oh, yeah. Hi, Ishmael. It's Frank. Nice to talk to you. Oh, Frank, I listen to you. Oh, that's great. Thank you. Here you go. Bye. Uh, And basically, I put Gilbert in the same position. And he was delightful. He was didn't mind doing it at all. Actually, he did mind, but he still did it. And he was a real good sport about it. And the thing that I was struck by, I'm going to ask Bruce Jarrett about this in just a minute. When I met Gilbert, not only that time, but in the subsequent seven or eight years, I found him to be off air when he wasn't performing, almost shy, pretty quiet, which is hard to believe. Uh, But as gregarious and as loud and as boisterous as he was in his stage presence, he was almost the opposite when the cameras were were off. Uh, You know who's like that a little bit? Curtis. You you see Curtis when a microphone's not on? He, and when he's not speaking, he is, he's as quiet as can be. There's some people who are pretty similar off air as they are on the air. Uh, Sid Rosenberg, exactly the same off air as he is on the air. Ron Kuby, exactly the same off air as he is on the air. But there are a lot of other folks. Simone, Simone, Mark Simone is one of those guys. You meet him off the air. Um, he barely says a word. Maybe 
that's just to me. But uh, even when we were friendly, people would come up to him and he would just give, you know, a word or two. Curtis is like that. Simone is like that. And um, Gilbert was was like that, almost shy to some extent. So uh, I I didn't know him well, uh, but uh, I was thankful that I got to know him a little bit. An incredible artist and somebody that uh, was just a heck of a nice guy that I've yet to hear anybody say a bad word about. A favorite guest of Howard Stern's. I mean, he was great doing Bella Lugosi as on Howard Stern. And uh, he would even, I remember he would even go on Howard Stern and play the role of a senile Groucho Marx. And it, it was hysterical. Now, maybe, it was, and this was, I think, after Groucho died. <laughs> so, I mean, uh, Gilbert was something, and he will not easily be replaced. And that voice of his, that voice is something that will never be replicated naturally by someone. I, I've gotten to meet his wife, Dara, many times over the years, an incredibly nice lady. And they only got married about 15 years ago, but they were very much in love. And she was very, very devoted to him. And uh, she was somebody that um, really functioned as his producer in many respects for his podcast and um, and a lot of other areas. So he is really somebody who is a once in a generation comic. We'll explore it a bit more with Bruce Charrett straight ahead. WABC. Nearly 100 years of broadcasting excellence. WJZ New York. On May 1st, 1953, WJZ became WABC. Celebrating 100 years. WABC Talk Radio. WABC AM emerged as the station with the most improved ratings in New York. Join us as we celebrate 100 years. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Uh, This was the song, one of the songs from Beverly Hills Cop 2, a very funny movie with Eddie Murphy, made a a bit funnier because of the incredible work of uh, Gilbert Gottfried. Somebody that um, has known Gilbert Gottfried personally and professionally for three and a half decades is a very good friend of mine. He's a veteran producer. He's a veteran entertainment manager, a philanthropist, and somebody that wears a great many hats. And that's one of the few pieces of his wardrobe that he hasn't had to change recently because he's lost so much weight that they've now come to call him the Incredible Shrinking Man. Very, very pleased to welcome my friend Bruce Charrett. Bruce, it's great to talk with you again. I actually lost one-eighth of a half size. Oh, did you really? For real? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Usually, uh, our no friend... No matter how much weight you lose, I have learned, you do not change your half size. Yeah. So go figure. Yeah, I guess you only lose that with uh, with male pattern baldness, I suppose. That'll do it. That's right. Or a good haircut. Exactly right. Uh, thanks for joining us, Bruce. Now, I know you, um, you've known Gilbert for a while. Under what circumstances did you first get to meet Gilbert? You know, I was thinking about that today. I met Gilbert... Um, around 1983, Gilbert had just done 
a failed television series uh, that was a syndicated late night show starring Alan Thicke that was to compete with the Carson Oh, The show. Thick of the Night, right? Was the that thick it? Thick of the Night, exactly right. And Gilbert was a, a comic. It had a it had a a, a, a group of um, resident young comedians that did the sketches with Alan. And uh, I, at that time, was going to college, and I was working for a, a famous manager in New York named George Check. And uh, as is what one does, you know, you go out at night, and there were certain joints. There was a place called um, um, Oh God, I, the name just escapes me right now. But it was a, a club where, or, or a restaurant where comics hung out and young performers hung out. And I met Gilbert, and he was. I I remember distinctly meeting him and saying. The guy's not that much older than me, and he talks like an old Jew. You know, I talk like an old Jew, but not like he does. I mean, it was ridiculous. And and he had that sound, and he was just funny. And um, so I, I, I met him, and I got to know him. Then he did a sort of a failed, uh, a failed, he had a failed journey on, on um, Saturday Night Live. On, uh, Saturday Night Live, which uh, I remember. And uh, then he started working all the comedy clubs. And how could you not get to know him? But very early on, very early on, he became, you know, I hate using the term a comics comic. You see that and, and people do use that term. And it's, I guess it's not a bad term. It means he was the guy that the other comics laughed at. And if you were in a comedy club, uh, if Gilbert was doing his eight minutes, everybody ran. All the guys would run, the writers, the guys would run and hear him. And Sometimes the audience didn't always get what he did, but he would always press the envelope. There was always an outrageous comedic sensibility to what Gilbert did. And um, he just was one of those guys through the years. And I've known a thousand comedians. You know, I've known probably every great comedian. He just had that, 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 that great, great sense of humor. He knew what was funny. And he could be, if you caught him right, outrageously funny. He could be so, so he could make anything funny. Gilbert could do 15 minutes on, on, a, on, a, on subject matter that was not at all intrinsically funny and make it hysterical. You know, he also had a side to him. He, he had, he, 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 I got mad at him once. I produced an evening at the Friars Club. Uh, for the Friars Club, it was a black tie dinner at the Pierre. And Gilbert got up and did singularly the most tasteless joke in the history of the English language. It was so horrifying that I couldn't even attempt to describe to you in non-horrifying <laughs> language how horrifying the joke was. It was 400 people stood there with their jaws hanging out. And he, it, it, it was so it was so Shecky Green got so mad. At me because I produced the the, the, the the evening that I'll never forget. He ran out of the building and I'm begging him to come back and he screamed at me on Fifth Avenue. If I wasn't ninety years old, I'd knock the shit out of you. I hope I uh, can say that word on the air. Well, we but dumped it. The, we dumped it. But I, know, it's okay. I know it's the middle of the night, but and 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 Gilbert thought it was funny and he just and I was so angry at him and he just that was Gilbert.
Uh, you know, no. it, it's so. Uh, I, I talked a little bit earlier, and I didn't get know Gilbert uh, as long as or as well as you did. But I got to meet him a bunch of times over the years, mostly through Joe Piscopo. And what I was struck by is that when he wasn't performing, he seemed actually pretty quiet and reserved. Was that your experience observing him? Uh, you know, what? I was just I was just going to say that because I didn't get to that. That was part of the dichotomy that was Gilbert. Off stage, he was quiet, soft-spoken. He he was a wonderful husband. He great. He was a wonderful father. I wasn't. I didn't have that relationship with him, where, where I was really involved in his personal life. But certainly, I knew that by reputation and a little bit that I saw of it. It was it was certainly obvious that those were the things that mattered to him. And he was almost. He was not. You know, he was not Milton Berle. He was not a guy off stage that did anything for a laugh. He could be really funny if he wanted to be, but he was, he was almost, almost introspective uh, when you were with him socially. Um, he was not one of those guys that was, that carried on and was on all the time at all. You alluded to his early tenure on Saturday Night Live and uh, the, the fact that it really didn't work out well for him. Uh, I don't think he made it more than one season. But, 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 Go ahead. Yeah, I know. I was going to say, if you you know, if you look, if you think about that through the power of hindsight, it would be so hard for writers to meet Gilbert sure. and figure out what to do with him. You know, Gilbert was that kind of a comedy persona that you kind of, he had to sort of evolve and explode and figure it out, and then you sort of step back and said. Oh my goodness, you know, just let him do what he does. And he was hysterically funny. But to have the very young Gilbert walk into a room and have other people attempt to mm -hmm. write for him and figure that out, that was a bridge too far. I mean, through the power of hindsight, it's, it's, easy to understand why that wouldn't have worked out. And, and just he wasn't necessarily everybody's cup of tea, his brand of his brand of comedy and the way in which he delivered it. You can understand why some people might be gravitated toward it and other people. It just wasn't their thing. Well, well, there, I mean, there were two aspects to that. The fact that he had a penchant for pressing the envelope of taste there's no question about that, and that's offensive to some people, including me. I mean, as I said, I had a really bad experience. I was really angry at him for a very long time. I think, you know, as as Tevye said in Fiddler on the Roof, sometimes there is no other hand. <laughs> I would argue that there are times when you just press the envelope too far. This is sort of a strange thing to be talking about, given what happened at the Academy Awards recently. <laughs> but but that's that's a different issue, you know. Uh, but obviously he, 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 he could do that. So he wasn't everybody's cup of tea. Um, and then, you know, you can get into the, the, the analytics of, 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 of to, an, a, a, you know, to analyze comedy. Like I remember once sitting with Gilbert and he got really upset at me because I said to him, I hate puns, which I do. I just don't like puns. I don't like Groucho Marx because I don't like puns and Gilbert loved puns. And he got so mad at me, he said, you're supposed to have a good sense of humor. How can you not like puns? Puns are the greatest, most. And he just carried on and beat me up for 10 minutes on the fact that I didn't like puns. So, you know, as they say, 
you can't please everybody all the time. You alluded to uh, his brand of comedy, which was at times acerbic and at times bordering on on tasteless. I, I think it was that tasteless comedy that in some respects may, made him such an in-demand personality at a lot of these roasts. This was a, a Comedy Central roast for, I, I believe, Joan Rivers a few years ago, and Gilbert says... A guy walks into a bar. Joan Rivers is the bartender. He sees a sign over the bar that reads, Cheese sandwich, $1.50. Hand job, $10. He says to Joan Rivers, Are you the one that gives the hand jobs? Joan says, Yes, I am. He says, Well, wash your hands, I want a cheese sandwich. <laughs> Good night. Now, uh, Bruce, it was that bordering on tasteless sense of humor that did get him in trouble. He made that tsunami joke, and uh, it cost him a very lucrative uh, position as the Aflac duck. Now, I can't imagine how much money that he was making as that Aflac duck. But if I had that job, I would live the rest of my life, the uh, the other 23 hours uh, of the day as a monk. I'd lead a monastic existence to make sure nothing happened to that. You make your living, you know, pressing the envelope. Uh, it's very hard to know when you're just going to press it too far and it's all going to kind of come tumbling down. And that's kind of what happened, I guess, with the Aflac duck. I always found Gilbert's roast performances curious because in a strange way, he always reminded me of Hannah Youngman in the sense that Gilbert didn't prepare, didn't have to, he was the only comic like Youngman who didn't have to prepare for the roasts at all because what the material he did really, and the Joan Rivers tape you just played is a perfect example of it, had absolutely nothing to do with the person being roasted. I have worked on scores of roasts uh, with every comic you can imagine, and it's a nerve-wracking experience because you try and think of who the person is and tailor the obscene jokes to the person and make it work and be clever and make it seamless. Gilbert didn't do any of that. Gilbert just said, good evening, ladies and gentlemen, Joan Rivers. And then he did the most obscene joke he could think about and plugged Joan Rivers into the joke, which is what Youngman, you know, that was the great Youngman joke. He would get up and he'd say, we're roasting Frank Morano. Frank Morano, what an asshole. Two Jews just got off a camel. Absolutely had nothing to do with you after the initial hello. And in a way, that's what Gilbert did. So he could never fail because he did all those dirty jokes, which were perfect at a roast, and it didn't matter who was being roasted. And do you think that joke about the the tsunami in Japan that cost him his job 11 years ago, was that, um, I guess in some respects, he was cancel culture before there was even a term for cancel culture. Uh, was that and it, was that a too harsh a punishment, do you think, that degree of condemnation? You know. I, I that's such a difficult that that's a different philosophical discussion to get into for another time. Uh, when you try and determine what, you know, when is bad taste too bad taste? And again, we, we have to get back to to what just happened on the Oscars, which to me is the most outrageous thing, you know, because the joke that Chris did was a mild joke. And I have lived my life working with comedians and defending free speech and 
the right to be funny. And certainly you want everybody to have the right to do that and so on and so forth. So when do you go too far? It's almost like what's the great line about the Supreme Court and pornography? We know it when we see it. We know it when we see it. Uh, And I think that's the smartest, insightful analogy we can make. We know it when we see it. We certainly know Chris Rock didn't go too far. And you might argue that Gilbert did with the tsunami joke. Uh, if people and, just, there, and, and there it is. If people just tuning in, we're talking with uh, Bruce Charrett. He's been a uh, veteran manager of talent, a veteran comedy producer. He's worn many hats over the years and uh, knew, uh, knew Gilbert uh, for a long time, going back uh, to the 1980s. You know, it is interesting that Gilbert was able to balance a lot of different roles. Now, a lot of people do a raunchy act and they sort of get typecast as being a raunchy comedian. He was able to tell filthy jokes and be in filthy films like The Aristocrats and then uh, be the voice of uh, the parrot Iago in Aladdin and be in children's movies or family movies uh, like uh, like Problem Child or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle. Not everybody could do that, could they? Well, well, but actually, if you think about it, uh, you know, analytically or existentially, Part of what allowed Gilbert to be so dirty was he had a cartoon-like persona and a good, he was very much in the style of Buddy Hackett in that way. Buddy did a filthy act, but he also was in The Love Bug and he also was completely adorable when he chose to be. So there's a long history of comedians that work blue who also could be completely cute and adorable when they want. Buddy comes to mind. He's the obvious example, and he's very much like Gilbert in that way. People still remember and talk about Lenny Bruce uh, 40 or 50 years after he's passed away. There are some comedians uh, that you know, or even comedic personalities, are going to have staying power, and they have a legacy that is going to live far beyond them. People like uh, like Johnny Carson and uh, Richard Pryor, uh, the list goes on and on. There are other comedians that shortly after they die, really, they're, they don't continue to be talked about. As far as you're concerned, is Gil Gilbert Gottfried, uh, the kind of comic or the kind of comic entertainer that's going to be talked about 40 years from now? Well, 40 years from now is a very, very long time. Um, it's, a, it's such a hard question to answer. I, I don't know that Gilbert's body of work as a comic uh, is big enough where he'll be able, we'll be able to hearken back to that material so young people, the, you know, the next generation will really be able to see him and know what he does and, and, and care about it uh, as, as somebody that you say was a groundbreaking personality. You mentioned a few people, and obviously everybody's different. Carson is remembered, obviously, because he was on TV so much, and he's the gold standard for a, for a, a particular thing that is still done. You have people doing what basically exactly what Carson did every single night on three different networks. Right. So it's easy to hearken back to him. Lenny Bruce has really, in my argument, and there were people who would disagree with me, has become something of a folk hero. Lenny Bruce has become his name 
is metaphoric for something actually greater than the material that he did or than he actually was. So he's one of those curious people that became uh, an iconic figure, bigger actually than his material. I think Lenny, and this is Lenny Bruce fans will be mad at me for saying this, had Lenny not died so young, Mm. I don't know that Lenny would have mattered to to the degree that he did. I think you could say that about a lot of people. You know, James Dean and Marilyn Monroe, they were... Uh, I mean, I could probably go on another uh, show on your network. A lot of people would, would say John F. Kennedy uh, in the political well, arena. Yes, yes. Well, and that has different ramifications. But even just with, you know, performers, uh, uh, I would. I, I'm a big Bobby Darren fan. I would argue that about Bobby Darren. There are a lot of people. I would argue that about Elvis. There are so many people that die young and then they kind of become metaphors mm. as opposed to being judged for their body of work. I think Lenny Bruce because of when he lived, when he died, uh, the the fact that he was a transitional period, a transitional comedian, uh, he was such an influence on people that came right after him, who in my, I mean, I think George Carlin was a far greater comedian than Lenny Bruce, uh, but George always harkened back to Lenny, so we, we sort of elevate Lenny in a way even beyond George, which I think is kind of unreasonable um in terms of gilbert Gottfried, he was somebody that you could tell had a lot of quirks about him are there any quirks in your mind that particularly stick out as you remember him well he was just such a curious he was elf-like when you met him you know when you were with him personally uh, he was not any. There were so many quirks. He was a plethora of quirks. He was a living quirk. But there was also, I mean, and I just want to end with this. Or I mean, I can stay on with you all night. I I got nothing to do. But uh, he was a sweet, dear, kind, quiet, adorable. Um, just, just. You just wanted to hug him when you were with him socially. And he was a dear, dear man. And um, there was nothing about him that was mean or evil or or difficult. He was just a kind, sweet person. And, you know, he had all that kind of rage and anger lived within him, I suppose, and it came out in his work. But you certainly didn't feel it when you were with him socially. Well, uh, Bruce, I very much appreciate you uh, you taking the time. I would keep you on all night, but we have uh, a mass shooter on the loose, and we have a lieutenant governor resigning in disgrace. So uh, I have to get back to some of that. And, th- and those things are more important than I am. <laughs> My goodness! Only today. I'll see you well, the next time you're in, ca- you're in town. In that Bruce. case, I'm going to bed. <laughs> Enjoy. Thanks very okay. much, Bruce. Appreciate you staying Take up late. Care. We're getting up early. Uh, this is the other side of midnight. You know. One of the things I really enjoyed about Gilbert in recent years was his podcast. And there was one edition of his podcast. And if you want to comment on Gilbert, you can. 800-848-WABC. There was one edition of his podcast in which he actually had Tommy James in studio. And Tommy James has been a guest on this show as well. But I don't have the voice that Gilbert Gottfried does. So Tommy James never made me do what he made Gilbert Gottfried do. Like when they sang, I think we're alone now. Children behave. There you go. <laughs> That's what they say when we're together. 
watch how you play. No publishing on this. <laughs> they don't understand. And so we're running just as fast as we can. Stay with him, Bill. <laughs> Holding on to one another's hand. Trying to get away into the night. And then you put your arms around me and it tumble to the ground. And you say, I think we're alone now. Listen to Rudy Giuliani every weekday at 3.55 p.m. For the Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Mayor's Final Thoughts. Rudy gives his insightful, most candid, and important final thought of the day on topics affecting our community, our nation, and you. The Mayor of New York City, Rudy Giuliani. The Tunnel to Towers Foundation, Mayor's Final Thoughts, weekdays at 3.55 p.m. on 77 WABC. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Frank Marano, 77 WABC. Breaking my heart, Elton John and Kiki D. Whatever happened to Kiki D? Uh, you don't hear much about Kiki D. Uh, I think Elton John ended up making something of himself. I think he's still around. All right, eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Hey, I, I want to thank my friend Sid Rosenberg. He was interviewing my my. I don't want to even call him my buddy Joe Borelli, but Joe Borelli is my brother. I was with Joe last night. Uh, Joe came over. Was, he's working on something and wanted my take on it. I wish every elected official would do what Joe Borelli does. We, uh, Joe Borelli is the minority leader of the New York City Council. Is that he asks my opinion about things. But even more than that, um, I really have come to value Joe as a ping pong sparring partner. We play just about every Saturday, sometimes Sunday as well. And um, that subject came up in his interview with Sid yesterday morning. Now, I told you, I beat Joe twice. I beat Joe twice on Saturday. And then I beat uh, my mother's longtime companion, Jim, on Saturday, two games. Then, of course, my brother came over, and he beat me three games in a row. He's one of the better ping-pong players I've played with. But sometimes all that matters is beating your friend, as evidenced by this discussion that Sid Rosenberg had with Joe Borelli yesterday. So here he is, Bernard, fresh off getting his ass kicked not once but twice what? by Frank Morano in ping pong in oh, Morano's oh, basement on oh. Saturday. The great assemblyman Joe Borelli, he uh, he kicked your ass, huh? He, he did, but, but the, the record is like twenty-five to two. He won once on Super Bowl Sunday after I had a few too many at halftime. True story. <laughs> 
And then I'm trying to do my work. I'm trying to book a Fox segment. I'm trying to talk to some to the city planning commission. He's distracting me, and he beat me the second time. Okay. So this is nonsense that he's a better ping pong player. I don't want the listeners uh, anywhere uh, in New York or abroad to think Frank Morano has any ping pong skills. You heard it here. First. All right. He did, he, well, did let, beat, he did beat you twice on, on Saturday, though. Let's face it. Neither of you are two world-class athletes. It's like Hillary Clinton boxing Nancy Pelosi. Oh, for God's please. Sake. No? Leave it to Bernie. 800-848-9222. Pamela is in Central Jersey. Hello, Pamela. Oh, hello. That was enjoyable. Uh, Guilford uh, Godfrey, who, uh, one might argue whose loss was that when Aflac fired him? Because until you mentioned it tonight, I was like, oh, my, wow. Our, my husband and I always used to quote that that commercial. And now it's like, oh, my God. Yeah, that's right. Aflac, what happened to them? Yeah, you well, know? that's fair. That's, uh, that's a good point, Pamela. A good point indeed. He's going to be missed, that's for sure. Thank you. Uh, those of you that are holding, I will get to you after the top of the hour. And I'm putting out the clarion call. I'm inspired by my interview with Fred Dicker. If you used to live in New York and you've moved elsewhere, whether it's Florida, North Carolina, wherever, do you find that you go out of your way to befriend ex-New Yorkers? Yes or no? Why or why not? 800-848-WABC. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They run in a strange program, y'all. Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno, proud New Yorker. If all goes according to plan, I will uh, spend my entire life in this city. That is my great hope. And uh, I know it's tough. It's expensive here. And there's all sorts of other problems. But uh, it's a city I love. Now, I meet people every day that grew up here and lived here for most of their life and love it here. But for whatever reason, move elsewhere. Sometimes it's the cost of living. Sometimes it's the crime. Sometimes it's the politics. Sometimes it's the traffic. Sometimes it's the climate. Whatever. People have different reasons. And they move. All my cousins that I grew up with, uh, they've all moved to uh, Pennsylvania. I'm going to see them on Friday. I'm looking forward to catching up with them and my Aunt Madeline and Uncle Joe. Uh, All my friends that I grew up with, they've mostly all moved to New Jersey. My two brothers, they moved to Brooklyn. A lot of people moved to uh, Brooklyn. I guess that's still part of New York City. Uh, but um, there's a lot of folks that moved to Hoboken 
A lot of folks move to Jersey City, young people especially, like Hoboken and Jersey City. A lot of folks move to uh, North Carolina. A lot of folks move to Arizona. A lot of folks love moving to Florida. I'm even starting to see some people move to Texas and Virginia. Now, I came across a um, a, an interesting um, article in the New York you know, I don't remember where I read it. It was either the, um, I think it was the New York Times. It might have been either the New York Times or the Wall Street Journal over the weekend. I think it was the Times. I, I, I can't remember. But it was about a person that goes on dating sites and seeks, to, they used to live in New York and they moved elsewhere. I can't find the article because I can't remember which paper it was and what the headline was, so I can't tell you exactly. But it was somebody who used to live in New York and they moved elsewhere to one of the places I uh, just made. Oh, good. I found it. Former New Yorkers are networking through WhatsApp. The chat groups in Los Angeles and Miami have become so popular that there are now waiting lists. In January, Ryan McGarry, an emergency room doctor, was skiing in Utah when he struck up a conversation with the man sitting next to him in an airlift. They quickly discovered that they had both moved to Los Angeles from New York. They agreed they missed the dynamic social scenes that they'd left behind. What I miss is a common denominator of ambition and motivation. I think there's something really electrifying in New York City, and I'm not sure I feel that in Los Angeles. Later, Dr. McGarry's new acquaintance told him about something that would change his social life. A WhatsApp group called NYC in L.A. It formed in 2020 to build community among former New Yorkers. Now has over 200 members. Apparently in Miami, they have the same thing. So it left me wondering. If you're someone that's from New York originally and you've moved somewhere else, wherever it is. Do you seek to befriend people from New York in your new community? You know, the fellow that I was just talking to, Bruce Charrett, he's from Brooklyn originally. Spent a lot of time in Brooklyn. And then he moved to Los Angeles to pursue all this entertainment stuff. He's got a fascinating story, by the way. He actually got married at uh, Les Moonves's, uh house. Imagine that. Milton Berle performed at his wedding. So did um, Stephen Eady. But, and anyway, and, and you know who he married? Joey Gallo's daughter. That's a true story. It's a true story. Now, um, maybe I'm on the, the racket report one day to talk about that, but putting that aside, who did he have breakfast with every day when he was in Los Angeles? Larry King, another former New Yorker. And I I wonder if there's some feeling of rapport or kinship with people that have both grown up in New York and then chose to leave it for whatever reason. So if you're a New York expat, whether you're living in Jersey, Florida, Arizona, the Carolinas, Pennsylvania, wherever, do you find that you seek out other former New Yorkers. Why or why not? 800-848-WABC. That's 800-848-9222. You know, it's funny. One of the first um, mob trials I covered 
I used to, my favorite thing to do in not in, in criminal trials is to have lunch with the defense attorneys, even not just mob trials, but all trials um, is to have lunch with the defense attorneys because they have such great stories. And especially if they're veteran trial attorneys and the lead trial attorney in this one case was Jeffrey Lichtman, who's been a guest on this show, who's a, a fine trial attorney, one of the best, honestly. And. I'm listening to him. Now, when defense attorneys are on trial, they're like, it's almost like they go to war. And they love to bash all the rats in their case. And this is a universal truth among criminal defense attorneys. And Jeffrey is lamenting all the rats that are testifying against his client. And he says, what is it? What do these people do once they go into the witness security program? Is it like my blue heaven where they all seek each other out and you have all these communities of ex rats that congregate and have lunch and dinner together. And I wonder the same thing about ex New Yorkers. If you move to Florida or Maryland or Pennsylvania, do you seek out former New Yorkers? If so, what's the point of leaving? What's the point of leaving? Maybe some of it is client. You know, it's interesting. In Monroe, New Jersey, for instance, a whole bunch of Staten Islanders have moved there. Now, Staten Island is a pretty conservative borough, at least in comparison to the rest of the city. And because so many expats from Staten Island have moved there, they've changed the politics of the town. So it's gone from being a Democratic town because of all the Staten Islanders that have left to being a conservative town, a Republican town. And, you know, that's happening the other way, too. You have a lot of people fleeing liberal cities, including New York, and they move to a city that's bucolic, suburban, uh, low taxes, low crime, and they bring their voting habits from those liberal cities with them. And now you're starting to see more Democrats getting elected. Morris Plains in New Jersey is one such town. So I'm curious, if you've moved out of New York, do you find yourself running away from former New Yorkers or gravitating towards them? 800-848-WABC. You can comment on any other issue that we've uh, talked about recently. uh, And uh, you're welcome to do that. Two open lines, 800-848-9222. Uh, let's see. I'm going to go in terms of who's been on hold the longest. I know that's always a risky proposition, but go ahead. I like to mix it up once in a while. Tyrone is in the Bronx. Hello, Tyrone. Good morning, Frank. Frank, two things I want to touch. Uh, Gilbert Gottfried's voice is, actually reminds me of Jerry Lewis, an animated scene from his movies, that old Jewish. I can see that. I can book. see that. I think that's where he got it, though, but it's great anyway. Yeah, the other point I want to talk about is you and just helping out with the inflation solution. You're welcome, I, by the way. You're welcome. See you going into that house and telling your woman and the baby you're going to ask the boss for a reduction in ratings. I can just tell you now, don't do it. Well, Tyrone, okay. there's a reason I save that to later in the show because my wife usually can only listen to the first hour. So I, I made sure to mention that in an hour that uh, that I knew she probably wouldn't listen to. Yeah, don't try it, please. <laughs> fair, fair enough, Tyra. Thanks for the call. 800-848-WABC. Jeff is in Queens. Hello, Jeff. Hey, Frank. 
Uh, yeah. Two points. On your last thing about moving to different towns, one of the um, familiar jokes on Fox to Friends is to say, you know, you can move to, to these you know, red states, but don't bring your politics. Leave your politics home. Oh, well, and, <laughs> and I mean, it's less of a joke than a reality because it does right, happen. You show that. And on Gilbert, I'm really sad. Really sad. I was very much in love with my uh, second wife when when Gilbert was in uh, Beverly Hills Cops. And that, made, that made our love of uh, discovery of Gilbert even greater. You know what I mean? Like, like being in a loving, you know, blissful relationship somehow it, it enhanced everything. But that's when I discovered Gilbert. Anyway, here it is. It's on YouTube. I'm pretty sure Gilbert Gottfried's take impression in two minutes on. Andrew Dice Clay. It's, it's, it's hilarious. unbelievable. No, I've heard it. It's hilarious. He's great. Okay. He used to do that on Howard Stern, too. He was great. It was unbelievable. All right, Frank. Thanks. Jeff, Jeff. thanks for the call. Uh, best of luck with your third wife, if that's what you're up to at the moment. 800-848-WABC. Uh, let me say hello to Marie in Tom's River. Hello, Marie. Oh, hello, Frank. Hello, Marie. Uh, I heard on one of your shows you were talking to Dr. Sky. Yes. About the the great media shower back in November 1966. Um, I saw it. I'd like to tell you what happened and what it was like. Um, at the, at back, back then, my passion was astronomy. And I lived out in bucolic Long Island where the sky at that time used to, was relatively dark. And I knew all the stars. And I used to go out at night. I had a telescope. I would... Uh, you know, observed the sky. And back in November, and I knew the Leonid meteor shower was coming back in November 66. So I wanted to go out to see the meteor shower. And when you see a meteor shower, you have to wake up early in the morning before dawn. And what you have to do, you're supposed to chart. Like you take a, you take a sky, a, a piece of paper and as you see the meteors, you mark down on your chart where they're coming from in a direction. So, and if you're lucky, usually they say maybe you could see like one meteor and uh, one meteor a minute. That's considered like a, a a big shower. So I got up early in the morning. Maybe it was four, four thirty, something like that. And I go outside with my. I've got my little paper, my pen, and my my flashlight with a red cover so I could see. And I'm going to chart the media shower. And I go outside, and I look up, and the sky is exploding. Wow. I mean, it's it was like not it was it made the Grucci's look like pikers. The whole <laughs> sky was exploding. I couldn't believe it. I took my paper. My paper just dropped out of my hand. How could how could you chart this? Like the media's were were coming. It, it was like when you when you see like uh, a, a picture of a nuclear reaction with the little atoms banging into each other and they're flying all over. That's what it was like. So I had to share this. Um, I, I I went inside. At the t- I I had to share it with someone. So I went inside. I tried to wake my my brother up, and he started snarling at me. Get away from me! I'm sleeping. I tried to wake my mother up. She said the same thing. She didn't want to wake up, and I was and I was so sad. I couldn't share this with anyone at the at the time. I believe I was thirteen. I think I was thirteen years old, and I watched this fantastic event. The whole sky was exploding, and I 
you know, and I was very sad because I was all by myself and I had no one to share this with. And so the, you know, I watched it till the dawn came up, the sun came up and I had to go to school. I believe I was in the eighth grade. So I, I, I was like, no, I had seen this incredible thing. And I, I go into school and there I am, I'm sitting in school with a bunch of kids, you know, throwing spitballs and, you know, it's humdrum, eighth grade. And I had just seen this cosmic event and I had no one to share it with. And because after that, that's when I started losing interest in astronomy around that time after that, because I realized it was like so lonely. I had no one to share it with. Yeah, well, you have you us. Know, and you have us, Marie. Excuse me? You have us. So uh, thank you for that. I appreciate that. Some some very heartfelt remembrances of uh, Gilbert Gottfried and some very insightful analysis of uh, whether or not New Yorkers actually befriend one another when they move to these new towns. 800-848-WABC. Paul is on Staten Island. Hello, Paul. Good morning, Frank. Um, I, I lived in Florida for, uh, for eight years, in Broward County, around 20 years ago when I was first uh, with my wife. And it wasn't that we sought out New Yorkers. It's most of the people we happened to meet by chance were from New York. And it, and we had some Floridian friends, but the ones that we met from New York tended to be more, um, how do you say, uh, down to earth. Like the, the Floridians were more, I don't mean to put down all, all Floridians, but were a little flaky, you know, more plastic compared to the people that we met that were from New York originally. It's, it's just almost every time we uh, went out, we'd run into somebody from New York. It was very weird. Now, it's interesting, Paul, uh, that you moved back here. Did connecting and meeting uh, ex-New Yorkers in Florida kind of, I don't know, make you miss the folks from your old neighborhood? Uh, you miss you miss the the New York Italian culture actually. You know, there's there's a couple of Italian delis down there, but anything, you know, Christmas doesn't feel the same. Actually, well, my best friend now, he actually moved before I moved back to New York. He moved back before me, and we're still best friends to this day. He lives back here now as well. Wound up having two kids and everything. Started his family here. But it's just you, you miss the uh, you miss the culture, especially around the holidays and everything. Sure. No, I can imagine. Game. That's one of the reasons yeah. uh, I would never go. Paul, thanks for sharing that. 800-848-WABC. If you were a New Yorker and you've moved elsewhere, doesn't matter where, do you find that you want to befriend former New Yorkers? Or do you want to stay away from them? Why or why not? Meantime, I just saw this great infomercial for the Gotham Steel nonstick pan. And again, I can't stress to you how little I cook. And then I was all set to buy this. And then I see advertised on the bottom of the infomercial that it comes with a free pan. And it's a two-for-one offer. So now I'm on the website. This thing looks great. Now, it's a ceramic pan. It's it's Thai Cerama nonstick technology. Second pan is free. How do I not buy this? It's made with ceramic and titanium. 
That's what I need. I need a titanium pan. If only I had a titanium pan, I'd be whipping up meals like crazy. I'm looking at the infomercial. They're whisking eggs right in the pan. And that's one of the few foods that I make. And then, you know, it says on the website, I just went there, and it advertises omelets. And you don't need butter or oil, which is great when, you know, you're dieting. Flaky salmon. And it says, I'm looking at the thing on the website. It says... Scratch resistant. You wouldn't think, you wouldn't dream of whisking eggs right in the pan. But with Gotham Steel, you can cook Parmesan cheese right on the heat without worry. I'm thinking that sounds great. Wow. But then I'm thinking, when do I need to cook Parmesan cheese without worry? I probably don't. But it looks cool. I'm curious if anybody has actually purchased this thing. Before I buy it. I'm sure somebody out there has purchased it. Email me, please. Frank.Morano at WABCRadio.com or comment in the Facebook group. Um, just search us online. Facebook. Um, just uh, on Facebook. Search Morano Radio Fans and Haters. Did anybody buy this Gotham Steel titanium and ceramic nonstick pan? And is it all cracked up to be? Because if it is good, if it's, like, it's only $20. I'll buy these pans and then I'll give my wife the blessing to throw out one of the existing pans. 800-848-WABC. Mike is in Hoboken. Hello, Mike. Hey, how are you, Frank? I, I, I guess it's, it's for me to know and my, you to my, find out. I, talking about, I live in the sixth borough of New York, Hudson County, <laughs> across the river. Yeah, well, see, there's a and lot of, there's, a, there's from, a few. My commu- family came from Ireland. There's a few communities that claim to be the sixth borough. You have Hudson County, you have Miami, and you have Yonkers. All of those places have the nickname now, Most people the sixth from New borough. York live in Hudson County now. <laughs> uh, fair enough. So, Hudson, Hudson, Hudson Heights, Jersey Heights, uh, Union City, Gutenberg. So when you nobody, nobody speaks English though anymore, that's a problem. Well, that that's how you know it really is the sixth borough because nobody speaks English in New York either. I'm forgetting how to speak English. Actually. Yeah, it's, I don't blame you. So, Mike, when anyway, you moved... my family came from from Ireland, lived in Hell's Kitchen, 1860. They const- the first generation was constructed in the Union Army. Well, thank you, Mike. I could see that was not going to be much of a conversation. You know, it's funny. I just googled sixth borough to see what the first thing that comes up is. Do you know what the first thing that comes up is? The first thing that comes up, Philadelphia. Huh, that's interesting. But there are a lot of other places that uh, that lay claim. As I mentioned, Yonkers, Hudson County, and um, uh, Miami, among others. So uh, there's a lot Manalpin. of Manalpin. really the sixth borough. You think so? Everybody moved from Staten Island, Brooklyn, to yeah. Manalpin. Yeah, I, I don't know. I, I feel like um, uh, maybe, you know, maybe. I never hear people call Manalpin the sixth borough, though. That is true. I never hear that. 800-848-WABC. Um, Tommy in Brooklyn, I hear you have a poor connection. There's a warning that comes on your phone call, and that's only made me curious. Tommy, what's on your mind? I want to comment, but can I get something out of the way first, Frank? Sure. Great show. Great show. Thank you. Hey, Paul, tell Paul to get back to work. There you go. Good. I'm glad somebody and, uh, straightened him out. I know uh, what you recall. With the, with the, it, ain't like, it just seems like New Yorkers gravitate to each other. It's like the attitude, the whole nine yards. It's just like, I don't know, like like when, when Paul and I lived in Florida, it was just like, you know, 
Everybody's too damn nice. Yeah, see, that's the problem. That's the problem. You go elsewhere and you miss that New York grit. So it's not as if, so what you're saying when you lived in Tom, in uh, Florida, Tommy, it's not as if you went out and um, sought out other New Yorkers. It's just that you were naturally attracted to that New York attitude. Yeah, some of my friends moved down there, so like you start networking, you know what I mean? Yeah. Hey, I wonder if Trump's going through that now in Mar-a-Lago, if he's surrounding himself with all sorts of New York expats now that he's a Florida resident. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-WABC. Ray's on Long Island. Ray, you bought those pans? Hey, Frank, what's happening, buddy? You tell me, man. You, you tell me. those pants, man. That's only one payment. They're not 20 bucks for the whole set. You're kidding. No, they, they bang you for like four payments on that. Well, besides that, talking about moving from Florida to New York and back and forth, when I graduated high school, I was a mug mixer down on the uh, Gulf a, Coast. A what mixer? A mud mixer. A mud I was a mason. Got it, got it, got it. I know. In Naples, Florida. So about six guys, we rented a house on stilts on the Gulf. You know, nice house right on the water. And one night we're all hanging out, and a plane goes flying over about 100 feet over the house. And it was at sunset. And we see the guy, we, we thought there were like people jumping out. We thought the plane was going to crash, and all of a sudden, there was a Coast Guard helicopter, like one of those dolphin, right over the top of the house, right behind it. Now, we're talking like 1982. They were throwing out bales of weed into the Gulf of Mexico, and we all dove into the water and dragged everything out. And they got heavier and heavier and heavier, and we hatcheted everything. And we got a nice bundle out of the middle, and we had a great party the next weekend. And then this one girl got so drunk and high, she fell asleep on the beach, and an alligator bit four of her toes off. Oh, my goodness. Yeah, man, no joke. But watch those pots and pans. No, no l- hang on, hang on, Ray. So I'm on the website. Outrageous. I'm on the re- website now. And I see it says, buy one Gotham Steel 9.5 inch pan, 1990. Yeah, pan. No, 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 no. Hang on, wait, 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 Ray. So it says, buy one, uh, quantity one for 1999 with shipping and handling, 695 And then it comes with a free. Nine and a half steel, um, nine and a half steel, uh, uh, nine and a half inch steel pan. Pan. It doesn't mention anything about other payments or getting more pans. It think this is just a one time purchase. No, 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 Frank. What happens is if you watch that, they'll suck you in. You'll buy the package, and then you'll watch another one. And you're like me because I listen to you all the time. I'm not a caller. I'm a listener. And they'll they'll throw in like a a stainless steel. A uh, basket and a muffin mm. plate. And that that sounds else. good. I think I need that. I think yeah, I need well, that, Ray. Well, you know what? If I need it, I'm going to come over to your house and borrow. <laughs> I'm not buying it. <laughs> Thanks, Ray. 800-800-800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Three things, Frank. Number one, I actually bought that pen. 
Oh. It was the biggest piece of garbage I ever bought. Really? It's yeah, the same one? It's, it's this one Gotham Steel? Really? Yeah, it was, it was the copper the copper uh, pan. But this one, is, this one is titanium and, and, and ceramic. Yeah, yeah, I know. That's, I, that's I, the I, one you have? Yeah. With and, the uh, Thai ceramic nonstick technology? It's not nonstick. You got to season it. They don't tell you you have to season it. What do you mean you have put, to season I put it? I'm it right away. It's stuck. I, I couldn't even get the egg out with a spatula. I threw the pan out. Well, you're kidding. What do you mean you have to season it? They want you to, you got to oil it up or butter it up and, and put it in the oven and bake it to season it. Oh, I you don't like that. that nonstick. It's, it's all, it's all nonsense. But listen. You could give it a try. Uh, no, I knew it was too good to be true. I knew it. I yeah, knew it. The, the second thing is... <laughs> fact, number two, do you think if they catch the subway guy, they're going to let him out on bail? No bail? No. Uh, I, even even uh, even Eric Gonzalez, I don't see doing that. Yeah, that would be something, Frank. The, the third is that... I, you know, I was very impressed at, at your patriotism, Frank. I also consider myself a patriot. And I think that if you're going to go to uh, Johnny Katz and ask for salary reduction, I might just do the same thing with Social Security. Yes, them to see, take see, that's what I'm saying, Neil. Once we get more people to opt out of this inflation, it's all, all the rest is academic. Once we start believing that inflation doesn't exist, eventually we'll be right. It won't exist. I'm glad you're with me, Neil. Thank you. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Rich is in East Meadow. Hello, Rich. Good morning, Frank. Good morning. I've been waiting for an opportunity to bash Gotham Steel, and you just gave it to me. Oh boy! You have to be you have to be pristine with the pans. You have to treat it like it's a science project. Nobody wants to have a pan you can't scratch. Yada yada. And I bought one pan, and they sucked. Thank you. All right. I might not want to buy this now. You know what? You know what turned me off, and I thought it's too good to be true. The price tag, because how can the best nonstick pan only be twenty dollars? So, and then I go on the Food Network just now, and I'm looking at they ranked the best overall nonstick pans, and the one they rated best is a hundred bucks. Now that's what I picture the best nonstick pan costing, hundred bucks. And they, they said, by the way, the, the best is the Anilon pan, the original best overall. It's still a top pick. It cooks well and has a bit of a lower price tag than the made-in pan. This pan cooks perfectly, golden brown pancakes, fluffy frittatas, and fish without leaving any skin behind. Plus, it's also a cinch to clean. See, that's what I need. That's what I need. Oh, it's only uh, $60 on Bed Bath & Beyond. Okay. Okay. Uh, all right. I'm, I may have to do further research before jumping in on this. All right. We are going to give you an opportunity to win $1,000. You can buy, that's, I don't know, possibly as many as 50 of these nonstick pans or that Emerald Lagasse French door thing that I saw earlier. You can go crazy on all the infomercials you see today. Uh, if you want to be, if you want an opportunity to win a thousand dollars by answering ten trivia questions in sixty seconds, then be the seventh caller to one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. That's one eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. If you're the seventh caller, we'll give you an opportunity to play the thousand dollar minute. You can answer the ten questions in sixty seconds. Then you will repeat. Will 
be the proud recipient of $1,000. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. WABC. We are New York on New York's Talk Radio 77 WABC. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for tuning in. We will be ending a little earlier today. We'll be ending at uh, 4.58.40. So I apologize for that. Uh, But uh, hopefully we'll be back to our full 5 a.m. end time soon. So we'll see. Uh, We're fingers crossed. If uh, If you have any influence with management, feel free to write in and say, hey, we need that additional minute and 20 seconds of Frank's wit and wisdom. So I'll leave that to you. All right. Um, Time now for one lucky person to have an opportunity to win some money because it is time for the other side of midnight presents. It's the thousand dollar minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Ah, yes, that's right. Thank you, Chris Libertini. Let's meet our contestant today, Viola in New Jersey. Hello, Viola. Yes, hi, Frank. Good morning. Are you named after the musical instrument? No, I'm not. Oh. I'm named after my aunt. Oh, well, that's nice. That's nice. What what uh, what are you doing awake this early in the morning? My aunt listens to your show, and actually she fell asleep when I was still awake. Oh, <laughs> how dare she fall I asleep? I listen with her. So, well, she yeah, she's going to be 90 in July. So uh, what kind of excuse is that? That's the worst excuse <laughs> I've heard since someone claimed they had lung cancer. All right. No. Um, Viola, I am going to ask you 10 trivia questions. The timer is going to begin after I ask you the first question, and if you can answer all 10 correctly, then um, you will be the proud recipient of $1,000. You ready to go? I'm ready. Don't overthink them. Most of these are pretty easy, okay? Okay. All right. Name a vegetable. Asparagus. What do you call a baby cow? Calf. What is the most popular internet search engine in America? Google. 
What Jewish holiday begins on Friday? Oh my goodness. Passover. What baseball player has hit the most career home runs? Um, oh God, I don't know. Uh, I'll just name three. I have no idea. Um, Derek Jeter. Nah, unfortunately not. Very controversial. Uh, not in the Hall of Fame. Barry Bonds. Barry oh, Bonds has hit the most okay. home runs. And a lot of people believe uh, it was uh, due to performance-enhancing drugs. Well, I'm sorry you didn't win. You got up to question number, uh, I believe that's question number five or six. Um, but uh, but I'm glad that you called, and I hope you'll call again, and I hope you'll make this listening a habit. I definitely will. Thank you. I'm going to be on hold. We're going to give you a consolation prize. And if you want to give it oh, to well, your, thank you. if you want to give it to your, uh, your, your aunt, I noticed you say aunt instead of aunt. Why do you do that? I don't know. I was just raised that an aunt is something that crawls on the ground. Okay. So. Well, that's fair. And you're right. You know, aunt is spelled A-U-N-T. Uh, an aunt has that U in there that you've got to serve some purpose, right? Right. That's right. All right. Well, uh, best of luck to you and your aunt. Hey, stay Thank on you, hold. You we're going to give, um, we're going to give Molly your information, and we'll give you something. All right. Hey, you know what today is, by the way? National Peach Cobbler Day. All of a sudden, couldn't you go for some peach? It is also, and I would have done something on this had I realized this earlier. Today is National Thomas Jefferson Day, because today was Thomas Jefferson's birthday. I didn't realize that. Uh, certainly an incredible person. I know... I think he's one of the many people that we're tearing statues down of now. But and as far as a modern-day Renaissance man goes, there are few people throughout the history of the world that have done as much and contributed as much to Western civilization as, uh, as Thomas Jefferson. Um, today's also National Scrabble Day and Make Lunch Count Day. That's not a real holiday. I think it insults the people celebrating National Peach Cobbler Day and National Scrabble Day to have it lumped in on the same day as Make Lunch Count Day. What is that? That's ridiculous. Uh, let me see. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment. want to wish you a happy birthday as well to uh, Paul Servino from Goodfellas and a bunch of other things. Uh, Romeo and Juliet, Reds, Law and Order. Father of actress, uh, Oscar-winning actress, Mira Servino. He's 83 today. And uh, Al Green, the Hall of Fame singer and songwriter. He's 76. And um, Max Weinberg, the E Street Band drummer. He's 71 today. So happy birthday to everybody that's uh, that's celebrating. And uh, today is uh, Brianna Nosti's birthday. Speaking of Joe Borelli, she works in Joe Borelli's office. And Audrey Silk who was once the libertarian candidate for mayor and still a smoker's rights advocate. You know, we should have her on the show to talk about uh, smoker's rights issues. Maybe that'll be my birthday gift to her. I'll invite her on. So happy birthday to her, as well as to Lauren Armstrong, who's celebrating a uh, birthday today. So uh, happy birthday to everybody that is celebrating. Now, um, interestingly enough, I had seen this story about Michael Jordan a couple of days ago, and I didn't have a chance to mention it. 
And it's really interesting. Now, Michael Jordan, if you don't know, is, of course, a basketball player, probably the most famous basketball player of all time. And here's the situation. He was enjoying a pizza. And evidently, there's a big controversy over what happened with his food poisoning. So there was a theory that Michael Jordan was actually, he apparently got food poisoning at a Utah pizza hut. And there was a theory that perhaps this food poisoning was intentional. And um, th- this is back in 1997, the night before Game 5 of the NBA Finals. And they were playing the Utah Jazz. Well, there's always been this theory that maybe he was poisoned intentionally. And now, this was back in 1997, now after 23 years, the man who found and delivered the pizza that Tim Grover insinuated gave Michael Jordan food poisoning the night before Game 5, he's been found. His name is Greg Kite, and he spent his Tuesday morning on a radio show telling his side of the story. He was an assistant manager at a Park City, Utah pizza hut and a self-professed Bulls fan at the time. And he called Grover's version of events, quote, crap, emphasizing the care that he put into making the pizza, knowing it was possibly going to be delivered to a member of the team. It was towards the end of the evening that we got a call. Everybody up in Park City was aware of where the bulls were. They'd already been up there for three or four days. So when you're working in the restaurant business up there, obviously you know what's going on. Kite did not yet know the pizza was going to be delivered to Michael Jordan. Still, he recalled taking great caution in preparing it, a privilege that he intentionally took on as the only Bulls supporter working at the restaurant. I remember saying, I will make the pizza because I don't want any of you doing anything to it. In fact, I kind of geeked out a little bit watching it and making sure it didn't puff up. It was a good pizza. That pizza was well made. I followed all the rules. Heck, at the time, I was so busy trying to impress to become the store manager there, I followed all the rules. I was kind of, it was kind of a running joke because I said, hey, let me wash my hands. I'm going to make this pizza because I w- it wasn't on the table. So then for months after that, while I was working there, still everyone was like, well, whatever you do, don't wash your hands. You'll get someone sick. So it was kind of a running gag. Eventually, Kite and a delivery driver, Kite stressed he and the driver were the only two people to make the trip, headed off to the hotel to deliver the pie. At the entrance, heavy security greeted them, but Kite said they were allowed through on the basis of their Pizza Hut uniforms and ID. See, sometimes it pays to wear that Pizza Hut uniform. That smell persisted through the elevator. They smelt cigar smoke. And as soon as you walk into the room, you could already smell the cigar smoke. They knew it was Jordan's floor. And where a number of the bulls were staying and smoking cigars. Then 
the encounter with Grover, which Grover remembers as being approached by five suspicious delivery people, according to him, he could sense something off from the moment they knocked on the door. He, Kite, is saying that is nonsense, that there was nothing wrong with that pizza. So you judge for yourself. Who are you going to believe? The pizza delivery person or Tim Grover? Grover is a... Uh, a businessman, a motivational speaker, a personal trainer, and uh, the owner of Attack Athletics. He is recognized as the trainer to the most elite, iconic athletes in the world. He's uh, trained Kobe Bryant, Dwayne Wade, and, of course, Michael Jordan. And he's the one that had insinuated that um, Michael Jordan was poisoned by, intentionally because they were in Utah. And now there's other theories about this. There's all sorts of conspiracy theories now that Michael Jordan's iconic flu game was secretly maybe just a hangover. You decide for yourself. 800-848-WABC. Let me say hello to Harvey in Amsterdam. Harvey, I was listening to Curtis's show on Saturday, and you called into Curtis, and you made reference to your previous phone call to me, but you were acting like you had called Curtis. Now... I felt a little slighted, I have to tell you, Harvey, because I thought that here we had this special connection, and then you're mistaking Curtis for me. Mm-hmm. Nothing to say, Harvey, huh? Nothing to say. I don't blame you. Someone that's never at a loss for words, though, even when those words are criticisms leveled at yours truly, is Melvin in the Boogie Down Bronx. Hello, Melvin. Greetings. I see you on to Thomas Jefferson. Hello, hello. Did he hold your ancestors in bondage and slaves and denied the rights of human beings? I refuse to recognize the only else of this as president because somebody has to run this country. When I got drafted 53 years ago, how your ancestors get here? My ancestors got here due to proclamation of 1501, but keep further down on Spain, it's the proclamation and clubs were the first of my ancestors here and change. My, I looked at my ancestors and I worshiped them. Could put me in my wars right here. Well, I got drafted 53 years ago, and you believe that something that you be done in Ukraine, that you be the first one in line to go down to that Pentagon and say you're going to go across that ocean and uh, fight for a bunch of people who refuse to fight for themselves. I never see one of down there, boom, boom, fighting against the nonsense. Go, I'm a firm believer in reparations. Now you go for it. Because we can have a go. We can agree to disagree without being disagreeable. But the United States of North America has a lot of answers to God. knows a whole lot of people will come here for those who fought for them to be here. And only five out of every hundred Africans can't change English speak. Because other 95 are scattered in South Central and on the Caribbean. Now, what we fired just that the other 95 couldn't. We fought. They need to go there and fight to correct what's incorrect. Because the war is going on to correct what's incorrect in the United States of North America. Melvin, thank you. I appreciate that uh, very much. Um, When Melvin calls in, because he does have a lot of intelligent things to say, even if they're things that I disagree with. I certainly don't agree with reparations, but I do agree with him, what he said about about Ukraine. I think I do, what I heard of it. And we got to have a way to get closed captioning for whenever... Whenever Melvin calls or Ralph, we have to have a way in real time, maybe on the WABC app, like when those guys call, we need to have a way to get a, like a running tally 
of what exactly they're um, saying. All right. Um, let me pause now because we have a minute and 20 seconds left than we less than we normally do. So I want to make sure that the people that participate in 15 seconds of fame don't get penalized uh, because of the retribution due to my denunciation of Matt. So uh, if you want to call in and you have uh, something to say for 15 seconds or less, please do so now. 1-800-848-WABC. That's one 800 848 Nine two two two, and uh, we'll give you an opportunity to be heard on any subject. Any subject. One eight hundred eight four eight WABC. Straight ahead. WABC. Talk Radio seventy seven WABC. Frank Marano. Thank you, Andy B. Um, we're with you until 4.58.40 this morning, and then you'll get to hear a minute of promos and then the WABC early news uh, with Deb Valentine, who does a terrific job. And then uh, you will get to hear uh, the Bernie and Sid show from 6 a.m. until 10 a.m. Uh, their very special guests include Curtis Lewa. He's going to be on at 6.40 talking about this subway attack. And uh, Andrew Giuliani, the Repo- uh, a Republican candidate for governor of New York, he's going to come on. And uh, he's always interesting. And uh, also former Congressman Peter King. And uh, he certainly is going to have a lot to say on the Ukraine front. You can believe that. All right. Uh, without further ado, uh, by the way, if you want to stay in touch with me, uh, you have several options. If you can't get through on the phones, you can email me, frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Or you can find me at, on Twitter at Frank Morano. I'm trying to have at least one of my tweets a day uh, go viral. And uh, so far today seems to be basically a quote from this show before where I said um, of Kathy Hochul vetting Brian Benjamin, I said, kudos to team Kathy Hochul for the extraordinary job they did on vetting Brian Benjamin. Who could have seen this coming? Capital letters. Everyone. So if you want to uh, retweet that, you can find me at Frank Morano. And uh, you can communicate with me on there. I got a direct message on Twitter, and I have open DMs. Uh, whoever you are, whatever lunatic you happen to be, you can direct message me, and I will read it. Lane Razima writes, Frank, the nonstick ceramic pans are great, 
never use anything else. Now, he's telling a different tale from what I heard from Rich and Neil. Now, he didn't specifically specify the brand of pan that I was looking at, Gotham. So, jury's still out. I'm going to go with these other recommendations. I might get one of these $100 pans. Uh, and we're also on Facebook at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. If you want to see a photograph of uh, a screenshot of Joe Piscopo, Gilbert Gottfried, and me, you can go to my Facebook page at facebook.com slash MoranoFan. I'm all the way to the right, and only half of my face is visible in the photo. But you could see I was there. I'm wearing purple, which I still wear. I still have this tie. I don't have this coat anymore. I wonder what happened to that coat. I have a similar one in black, but you could see it. And uh, I didn't even know this footage existed until today. So, interestingly enough, that's the case. All right, without further ado, it is time for you to be heard for 15 seconds. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Fame. Cassius is in Brooklyn. Hello. Yeah, this is uh, Cassius. Hey, uh, Frank, do you notice that Curtis Lewis is really instinctively believing that you're definitely wrong about the things that you do in your neighborhood in Staten Island? Are you going to do something about that? Thank you. Ross in White Plains. Yesterday when you asked about the honeypot that the deep state obviously used to trap and discredit war critic Scott Ritter, I cringed because I haven't heard you ask Bernie Carrick lately about being unjustly locked up in his own jail. Uh, Again, if this weren't 15 seconds of fame, I would address that up tomorrow. Peter in Manhattan. Yes, Gilbert was a disgrace to great Yiddish humorist. But I attended his sister's funeral and we got to talk. You know, in real life, Gilbert was a nice guy, but he has this weakness that seems to permeate through Jewish culture with Stern and Bruce that they have to attack black people. Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, my friend Waska used to work for Ikea, assembling all their floor samples. The customers would never leave him alone. Question about this, question about this. That's so bad, he had to hire a constitutional lawyer. He had freedom of assembly. Yeah, I think that was a premature rim shot there, Matt. What did you think the joke was? What was the joke? Why would, it, why would that be funny But until he says freedom of assembly? Yeah, watch that, man. Uh, Ed is on Long Island. Hello, Ed. Hi, Frank. Uh, why don't they take the red light cameras and the speed cameras and put them in the subway? They always work. That's a good one, Ed. Even though I'm not sure that was a joke. Uh, Chris is in the Catskills. Hello. After listening to the Bernard Carrick and Fred Dicker interviews, Curtis Lee was correct. Frank Morano is the best interviewer in radio and television today. The Democratic Socialists will manipulate match funding to try and advance their candidates. Vote Tom Swazi, Democratic Party primary, June 28th for governor. Cheech and Howard Beach. It's only a matter of perception. Our streets and our subways have never been safer and cleaner. Come back to New York, a great vacation spot. The the greatest and safest city in the world. Joe in Massapequa. Susan Moron, Susan Moron. Neil on Staten Island. Yeah, they gave us $19 billion from the feds, and these morons can't get two cameras to work. Also, buy a racial ray, anodized aluminum fry pan. You can't go wrong. Gina in Brooklyn. I was going to say, buy the $100 pan on a holiday weekend and get it to New York. 
No, that would be me buying into the inflation mentality, which I'm not going to do. I am I am opting out of inflation. Al is in Manhattan. Pray for the Ukraine. Pray for Bernie. I yield my 10 seconds back to Senator Moran. Anthony in Edison. Yes, good morning. Unfortunately, we still have about 210 days left to get rid of Biden's crew of traitors and bring back Donald Trump again, and we got to make America normal again before we can make it great again. Thank you. All right, that slams the lid on things for today. I know most of you are used to hearing me for another minute and 20 seconds. Not meant to be, folks. The WABC Early News with Deb Valentine is next after a minute of promos. I'll be back tomorrow at uh, 1 a.m. Bernie and Sid coming up at 6. Frank Morano, good day.